Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing? A little confused. All I'm right. I'm sure on myself. Okay. I'm going to bring something up to you. Now, I know that you don't have HBO, right? No, but I do have HBO Go. Okay, so have you been watching True Detective? No, not yet. Okay. I've, I've heard it's all right. <laughs> Here's the thing. So, not this most recent. Uh, I know because of our lag, whatever. Um, so, it's like a couple episodes ago at this point. But there was an episode that ended. I mean, it wasn't the very final shot, but the... The second or third to last shot was a six-minute long. I have heard. Take. I have heard about it. Yes. Uh, very um, lot of stuff going on. Very well choreographed. There's. I mean, at one point, the guy had to go from like the steady cam operator had would have had to step onto a crane and to go over a fence and then follow again. That's neat. Uh, you know, he had then obviously the the director is timing it with a helicopter and cop cars and mobs of people running by. All uh, right. It was, <clears throat> Very, very uh, impressive. And the, it was the kind of impressive where I didn't know until – I didn't realize until the next morning when I started reading about it that it was all one take. Okay. You know what I mean? All because right. Because I was so into it. But here's the thing that's bothered me, <clears throat> that I don't know if I'm wrong or other people are wrong. So many people have been referring to it as a tracking shot. Now, to me, tracking shot is a more specific subgenre of the long take. To me, a tracking shot. I think of Jean-Luc Godard's Weekend, where there's the shot of the there's the uh, the, the the traffic jam mm-hmm. on the freeway, and the and the the camera is literally on a track and has a long shot of panning along the side of the freeway. So you see all these different sort of vignettes as it goes by. To me, that's a tracking shot where sort of, the camera is sort of fixed but moving. If you know what I mean. That's how I that's how I always took it. Sort of like that that extended thing, not the ca- not the long take in the car. But the war shot in um, in Children of Men, although I guess that does come off the track eventually, because like it's just kind of, for lack of a better term, sort of side scrolling a little bit. Yeah, that's what I think of as a tracking shot. Okay, that's what I. I mean, I'm so, fine if if people want to redefine it, but uh, but what, that's what I always. What, where does the word tracking come from? If if the camera is moving free as you like, the way it is in mm-hmm. this True Detective episode. What does the word tracking have to do with anything? With anything, is it because? And here's the only thing I can think: mm-hmm. is that the camera is on Matthew McConaughey's character pretty much, except for occasionally like sweeping over to look at something to his left and sweeping back. Yeah, it's pretty much on Matthew McConaughey as he goes as he navigates this. Yeah, so it's tracking him. Is that the idea? I've heard people say things like like uh, I don't like the phrase, but it's like are are you tracking with that? Are you tracking with me? And uh-huh. I, I think that come to mean like are you going along with me and right. so if it's following one character then i guess yes it is sort so of is that what people so i want people uh, i'm asking you but i'm also asking the listeners because if if this term tracking shot means has this broader mean more vague meaning than i thought it did mm-hmm. then tell me what the word tracking means because to me like i said tracking shot is a subgenre of the long take i would i would agree but at the same time like we've we've both been to film school yeah <laughs> is that maybe what it is it might be that but also like, like this is, is not maybe a reason that you and i say long take as opposed to long shot because long shot means it's shot from a long distance away that is true the other day i was talking about uh i did mention uh i made reference to a long shot and then i corrected myself right and yeah. i was like oh, i'm sorry long take yeah um yeah 
uh, when did I do? Oh, right. Yes. Uh, when I was tweeting about, uh, uh, only God forgives the touching story yeah. of a blue filter no. that falls in love with a long take. Yeah. Let's not, <laughs> let's not, uh, give away one of your top 10 <laughs> just yet. Uh, if you don't follow Tyler on Twitter at more lessons, you're, hey, you're missing out, but you might not have realized um how how pure and vibrant his hatred of only god forgives was it's not hatred it's more just sometimes a film just gives you gifts and all you can think of is jokes you know i got a full i got a full night's sleep the night before and i was like oh i've got like 10 things which one do i do i'm gonna do all of them um i got nowhere to be anyway so yeah i i I just bring that up to say I i would like from people who use the term fracking shot um, more liberally than I do to email me David mm-hmm. at battleship com or tweet me at the pretension and tell me what you mean by tracking. Indeed. Cause it, it was, it's been bothering me all week mm-hmm. or I guess at this point it's been like two weeks since that episode aired almost anyway. It's a really good show though. I'm sure it is. And I think I will enjoy it quite a bit. Um, I was talking with a friend of the show, Jason Eakin the other day. And of course he's a big fan of, uh, uh, certain you know a certain type of well he likes good writing in general but he does tend to like writing that is kind of ornate and he really liked it but he also said that he's not completely into it yet uh because sometimes the way they write mcconaughey's character just doesn't seem to gel with the the show in general had i he, seen had i out. seen okay i don't know i know you this is me talking to someone who hasn't seen the show but the show is one of the many many things it's about is the lies that people tell to themselves to get through the day. Mm-hmm. So I think he needs to go back, watch Matthew McConaughey's, watch McConaughey's character again from the point of view that he's trying to convince himself maybe when he talks. When okay. He and, and if it rings a little false, it's because it is. And he's probably not nearly as sure of himself as he sounds. And I might be completely uh, misrepresenting what Jason's uh, objection was, but it was, it was something like that. Um, Okay, but yeah, it, well, it does sound like about the it kind when of... we all share a hotel room at WonderCon. That's happening. <laughs> we just talked about yeah, off mic. Yeah, I got to got to run that by Jason real quick. Oh, but, I don't uh, think Jason will have any problems with it. I don't think so. We all did high school theater. We know how it goes. Sure. Yeah. Um, and I can sleep. I don't, I don't sleep on the floor. I don't give a fuck. Um, but as of today, I am registered as press for WonderCon. Got Ooh. that taken care of today. So uh, Battleship Retention will return to WonderCon. Right. Yep, you're not very triumphant about that. Well, did you, did press registration like just open up? Yeah, but because I already have like a member oh, okay. or you know a press ID and everything, it was lickety split. Oh, good. I was waiting for it to open up so that I can yeah, apply for press today. Oh, beautiful. Okay. All right, thank you for for mentioning that. Uh, yes, we will be out in force uh, at WonderCon. Yeah, and then I am going to Comic Con as is uh, uh, my other co-host Josh Long. He is also going to Comic Con. My plan right now is to go to Comic-Con. Okay. Um, yeah, wedding planning and wedding expenses have made it not a, defi- a 100% definite thing. Mm-hmm. But so far, until further notice, I am going to Comic-Con. Okay, so we did uh, we did that. Um, now make sure everybody... We're trying to rush through our top of the show stuff because we, we got a long episode here. Yes. So one you guys have been waiting for uh, for a year, pretty much. Uh, so and we, we've kind of been waiting to do it 
it's one of my favorite episodes of the year if not my favorite so uh slash something that we kind of dread from a time commitment standpoint ah, i'm fine so uh, everybody strap in your tweakedaudio.com earbuds if you don't have any hit pause go to tweakedaudio.com slash pretension that's where you get tweaked audio's full lineup of professional quality earbuds in the full variety of styles and colors and by going to the slash pretension portal into the website you get that for one third off and you don't you don't have to pay any shipping charges so that's tweakedaudio.com slash pretension all right everybody ready uh i i oh are you strapped in no i'm sorry hang oh. on everybody just a reminder that th- so this has gone up on sunday the BPs, the first annual BPs ceremony has aired at this point. Right. So if you go to battleshippretension.com uh, or you, you can find it in our uh, in our iTunes feed, uh, give it a listen. N- uh, a number of our a number of uh, friends of the show were presenters and we talked about the various winners and stuff. Uh, it was a lot of fun and I want you guys to uh, enjoy it because it was also a lot of work and I want people to hear it. It was fun so, work. It was. It was. Like, uh, yes. I and did my part. You did a lot more of the work. Fair enough. Uh, but you know what? I, I enjoyed it, and I'm, I'm excited to do it again next year. Good. Uh, right. But yeah, so check that out at Battleship. Work. Indeed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, go to BattleshipPretension.com and, and check that out, and, uh, and I hope you guys enjoy it. Okay. Let's get into it, shall we? All right. Um, now, here's what we need to decide. Who goes first? Now, um, I guess what we have to say is, well, we, you and I need to figure out what we should have figured out off air is who's number one do you want to be the final one? I feel like it should be yours because we've both seen it, and I don't think you've seen mine. Fair enough. Oh, I don't think I have either. Okay. So I will go first then, starting here. And we're going to start, before we get into our top ten, we're going to start with some ancillary categories, and I will start with, we want to start bad. We want to start mm-hmm. negative, right? Yeah. And then arc, the whole show is, is steering toward the positive. So we're turning, starting, turning from what the internet is into what we all wish it were. Yeah, starting with you and I wish it were. Yeah, fair enough. Starting with uh, you know reveling in negativity, right. and then moving into positivity. Uh, but I'm not going to spend too long. I don't think on my worst film of the year. Okay, um, because we've already talked about it on the show. Uh, we talked about it with Will, Will Anderson and uh, Studios Kokinos on mm-hmm. the episode 350. Uh, it's Zack Snyder's Man of Steel. Okay, then there was no competition. Like I mean, there are some other movies I saw this year that I didn't like, mm-hmm. but. There was, there was Zack Snyder's Man of Steel, then A Mile of Bad Road, then the next one. Okay. There was, there was no competition for worst film of the year for me. That, it's like, it, it is the, the culmination of everything bad about cinema in recent years. In that it is so overstuffed with effects and with spectacle and with just pounding assaultive explosions and noise noise and noise which is something i've been really like i feel like an old you li- you just sounded like the grinch he literally yeah. says noise 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 uh, but that's it's something that i've been really against which i want to make clear i'm not the kind of bird i'm not like the old man who's like oh it's too loud that's not what i'm talking about i'm talking about just meaningless noise i started noticing this in earnest maybe was it like two years ago when real steel came out yeah when i was when when just a quiet scene the robot would move even a little bit it'd be so loud yeah that it's just trying to like and i realized what it's trying to do it's trying to deaden you uh it's 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 essentially trying to wrestle the audience into submission and man of steel in that 
it, with that in mind, succeeded more than any movie ever in that it was the most deadening experience. It it made me, you, you know, now you haven't read Harry Potter. No. Right? But you've seen the movies. I'm, yes. not, I'm not sure how much this is explored in the movies as well as it is in the books, but the way the Dementors make you feel mm-hmm. like you'll never be happy again. Yes. That's the way, the way Man of Steel made me feel. Fair like my enough. soul is being sucked out by a Dementor from <laughs> from Harry Potter. Uh, yeah, it's. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with you about the use of sound uh, in movies like Real Steel or even uh, Man of Steel, Man of Real Steel. Um, <laughs> it's uh, because as you and I, uh, as I've said on the show before, uh, the biggest technical thing that I got out of film school was how vital sound is to selling reality. And so if you're, if, if a filmmaker is setting up a world that is a little bit unlike ours, then it's like, all right, so what we'll do, we'll layer on certain types of sound effects and that will sell the reality. Now the question then is, do they, (laughs) the answer is no. Uh, and so, um, but yeah, and, and, you know, you mentioned spectacle uh, uh-huh. with with Man of Steel. I love spectacle, as I'm sure you do, when it's done well. Sure. But this is just, this isn't spectacle. It's just big. Yeah. I mean, I, and I've that's it. I've talked about how much I, and I, I've talked about it so much that it's starting to sound like I loved the movie, but I was surprised by how much I liked Oblivion. Okay. And it's come up on like three shows in a row now. I didn't love the movie. Okay. I just was surprised by how much I liked it. And that's a movie that has a lot of grandeur to it Mm -hmm. but it isn't throwing shit at you the whole time yeah it it's 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 look is considered and designed and awesome in the old timey you know yeah uh, use of the word whereas man of steel is just pummeling you with stuff every every which way yeah it's it's a movie that i didn't necessarily hate but it's just one of those uh the, I can I can tell you the very first movie that I saw in which I ever consciously decided it's like okay I get it the term mind numbing I get it and it was Van Helsing <laughs> Man of there have been other movies since then uh-huh. but Man of Steel is mind numbing in that you can't think yeah you can't you certainly can't feel anything like I, I felt nothing during yeah. that movie I mean it's 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 such a wasted opportunity, especially when you consider like there's a lot of talent involved. Yeah. Uh, can I not necessarily, <sighs> can I spoil? Sure. Can we, I mean, I'm going to spoil literally the end of man of steel. So oh, all right. Skip ahead. If you don't already know, but I imagine people know by now. Yeah. But I heard all this talk going in like, Oh, Superman kills a guy at the end of the movie. Yeah. And this is just me not getting what Superman is about, clearly, because I saw I was waiting for the whole movie. I was like, when is he going to kill a guy? And then he kills the bad guy. And I was like, well, yeah, of course he kills the bad guy. This is a movie. I knew that was going to happen from the word go. And that's just me not getting, apparently, what Superman means to people. It's that it's that idea of because I've never been a huge Superman fan, but uh, it's that idea of like he's supposed to be goodness incarnate and that he will always find a way to not kill but it's not only that he kills the bad guy the bad guy forces him to kill him yeah by saying like if you don't kill me i'm gonna use my laser vision or whatever the hell they call it uh to to murder this family and millions of dead people directly before that aside um that he leaves superman literally no choice and so it's it's one of those things like oh well he'd be dumb not to kill someone yeah like 
Like, I understand, mm-hmm. I mean, killing someone is probably a bit of a traumatic experience, but this isn't something he's going to, like, beat himself up over. Right. Right? I, but he shouldn't, yeah. you know? Like... It, yeah, he did what I would do. Yeah. Truth, justice, and the American way. Part of the American way is, uh, yeah, you, you have the right to defend yourself and others, if you like. Yeah. This uh, is... Uh, you know what this is like? It's like the character Kate on Lost that you and I have talked about. They teased her backstory for a whole season about how she had some dark thing and like, oh, she killed the man she loved. And then you actually figure it out and it's like, oh, that's everything she did is more or less justifiable, especially yeah. within this TV world. Yeah. The one thing that would have been more <laughs> asinine was like, oh, her she broke, uh, you know, she broke through a window to steal some bread to feel to, to feed her family <laughs> like she couldn't be more jean valjean it was yeah. it's oh good god oh i forgot about kate i wrote an article back when i back when i wrote for pop culture beast oh. uh i wrote an article that i that i entitled hating kate uh-huh. about how much i just hate that character so much and they never did anything with her except yeah, that's too bad except they gave her enough mystique that it's just like hey we need somebody who could like potentially like track people like, hey, Kate, uh, Kate's a blank slate of a human. So let's just put that on her. Okay, okay. moving on. Yeah, what's your worst of 2013? I don't know if I would say it's the worst, but it's certainly my least favorite, and it is Neil Blomkamp's Elysium. Okay, I didn't see it. Yeah, big no thank you. Uh, That's what I said. I, it just, yeah, it's, I saw it when I was in Switzerland because it was a movie that, like, Jen and I are like, hey, let's go, let's see a movie. We were in a, a city that we weren't super thrilled to be in. Um, everything about that city that was interesting was what it was close to outside of the city. <laughs> um, so we were just like, Oh, let's go do this. So we went and watched it. And, uh, and at first I was like, eh, that was fine. You know, whatever. But then it really crept into my brain. And now you and I aren't, we're not over the moon about district nine. I think there's brilliant parts of it. Um, yeah. And then it turns into a video game at the yeah, end. But like a whole section where I kind of checked out. Yeah. Um, and so like, but it's got like such a notable main like, character. If that, that, that app, I don't know if you've heard that app that tells you when you, you can go to the bathroom during the movie. <laughs> like if I were to design that app, district nine would have about a 25 minute gap. Where it's like, go have a cigarette, feed the parking meter, yeah. do what you need to do. Come back for the last scene. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah. Uh, and then the music over the end credit is pretty good. Um, yeah, uh, but that movie is, it was very original. It was very original in some ways, like specifically in its main character, like having this goofy bureaucrat at the center of this film is a very, I don't know, not necessarily risky, but it's a novel idea. Mm-hmm. So that character bought a lot for me, but also just the, the nature of the story that it's telling the fact that it's, it's aliens are not cute they're not ET. They're not uh-huh. Yoda. They are kind of gross looking. There's a reason that they, that they are called prawns by mm-hmm. people. Um, and so there was a, st- a lot of stuff that I liked. Uh, and then it, and I think I said this on the show, apparently it only took, it took one movie for Neil Blomkamp to just go from novel, exciting director to just shit. <laughs> just <laughs> like it's, I like really getting all our negativity. Yeah, just first off, you managed to. Okay, so he gets. uh, Oh hell, now I can't. Charlotte Copley, whose whose praises I I sang last week in the film Europa Report, and who played the main character in District Nine. So he's in this movie, and he plays a villain. And there's just nothing there, and he overplays him, and he's not he's not interesting, he's not nuanced, he's just it's Neil Blomkamp basically said, hey, play a monster, all right, thanks. 
he managed to get a terrible performance out of Jodie Foster. Congratulations. Uh, and then his main character is Matt Damon, who I think can be a really good actor in the right role. But I'm not sure if I'd say he's phoning it in or he's totally tapping into the total blandness of the character. So it was just that. And then it's just more of the action that I, that is that we don't, that you and I didn't like. Right. It's an interesting vision of the future. I like that, but it doesn't do anything with it. Uh, and then also it's political allegory is here's the thing. Like, um, some might say like, Oh, well it's, it's talking about, you know, healthcare and healthcare for the poor. And you're Tyler, you're probably just, you're just conservative. So, you know, like, it's like, I'm used to seeing movies that di- first off, I'm, f- I'm fine with healthcare for the poor, by the way, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm not uh, a eugenics type. Uh, but what I will say is that like, I'm fine with, I've seen plenty of movies that have a different f- philosophy than, than what I have. And I love a good portion of them, but like this is and what you what you and i've talked about regularly is like horror and sci-fi it has the potential to explore something something very uh relevant to our society and do it in a way that where you're just like oh wow that's really bold but this one there's really no boldness to it and what's more is like it's all straw men it's all easy it's basically saying like ah in the future there will be miracles and only rich people have access to them and it was just like it just bothered me so much that it's so easy and it felt almost perfunctory almost like he he thought well i had political allegory in district nine so i guess i'll do one now what should i do well healthcare is a big thing right now i'll do that and didn't put any of the effort into it and so it's just a movie that like, I just, I think back a big thing for me, as I've said, as I said about, about Man of Steel is wasted potential. Neil Blomkamp, I'm sure, yes, I'm sure he was working with a studio, but I'm sure they were content to kind of let him just do whatever he, m- maybe mostly whatever he wanted to do. But, and I feel like he just fumbled the ball. He had Jodie Foster. He had uh, Charlotte Copley. He had uh, Matt Damon. He had a pretty big budget. Mm-hmm. And that was the movie he made, a totally forgettable film. And though you and I are not hu- are not diehard fans of District 9, the last thing you would ever say is that it's forgettable. Right. Moving on. Okay, so to keep in the, in the negativity sphere for a little bit, uh, I'm gonna, we're going to get into our, what we consider to be the most overrated movies of the year. Um, All right. And mine is not Short Term 12, as listeners <laughs> last week uh, I mentioned that it's not. Okay. Because um, I just... Uh, my, my reactions against that movie is that I didn't like it very much, but I'm reacting against the hype. Maybe that's what overrated means. I mean, it should be. Mm-hmm. But no, the movie that I think was the most awful movie that got a pass somehow was Steven Soderbergh's Side Effects. Oh, yeah. You're like the only person I know that didn't care for it. And I, beyond, didn't care for it. Yeah. I hated it. I mean, it was it was my bottom movie of the year for... A long time at this point right now looking at my list it's only the it's still the third worst my third worst movie of the year what's second worst bad milo oh fair enough <laughs> um but like i have austin land and pacific rim like both above side effects i really found it not only it's it's a movie that i think is passing itself off as smart but it's actually really really stupid it's sort of like um What's the movie with Gerard Butler and Jimmy Fox? Law-abiding, Law-abiding citizen. citizen. That's that's the kind of movie that has all these twists and turns that that at a cursory glance, or maybe if you're not a very sophisticated film goer, you might think 
like, oh, this is a really smart, clever movie. But really, it's just like outdumbing itself <laughs> with each turn. Yeah. And that's essentially... R- written what, by Donald Kaufman. I didn't know that. No, it's not. Uh, I'm, I'm being sarcastic. Donald, he doesn't exist. He's, uh, he's the Charlie Kaufman twin brother in oh, adaptation. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's exactly what I'm talking about. And so Side Effects is essentially the uh, Steven Soderbergh sort of mid-brow, uh, yuppie-centric version of that. Okay. Uh, it, did I say Side Effects? Yes. Side yes. Effects. Um, so I don't want to go too much into it, but it's, it's also a little bit insulting in that it sort of is set up like it's going to be this sort of expose or takedown of the pharmaceutical industry and the way mm-hmm. that doctors are persuaded by the money from pharmaceutical companies to yeah. recommend or to prescribe pharmaceuticals that might not be ready or might not be correct for the patient, mm-hmm. you know? And uh, that would be an interesting thing. A, when it does explore that, it does it really ham-fistedly. Okay. And then B, it turns out to be this whole sort of bullshit like um like almost cinemax level like erotic thriller type of movie <laughs> like it has secret lesbians and stuff like that oh my <laughs> uh it's uh it's really really ridiculous and i don't think it got nearly enough uh jeers yeah i don't think it got enough shit for how ridiculous a movie and how how thin and dull not dull as in boring but dull as in not bright. Yeah. <laughs> this movie is. <laughs> boy, oh boy. Yeah. And I, and yeah, th- and that's, what's interesting is that, uh, cause that came out a, like a year ago. Yeah. It's been, I think been more than a year since I saw it. Yeah. And that hung on yeah. all year long. <laughs> so, it really did. um, okay. So, uh, my overrated, I came up with a couple of options, uh, before landing on something. Uh, so, okay, uh, my options were 12 Years a Slave, Nebraska, and then recently, Only God Forgives. But <laughs> uh, Only God Forgives, there are plenty of people that don't care for it. And so uh, so it's like, all right, well, it's not really that overrated. Uh, Nebraska, despite uh, its its awards prestige, there's not a lot of people that love it. Uh, it, it got some pretty solid C pluses, B minuses across the board. 12 Years a Slave, I'm sure I'll talk about it some other time. <laughs> and there's enough, there's enough great in it that I cannot, I, I can't say it's yeah, for all purely stuff overrated. That I've, that I've agreed with you about not liking 12 Years a Slave that much. If you mm-hmm. look at my whole list of the year, it's actually pretty high. Yeah, my, mine too, which speaks to, by the way, how this year wasn't that wonderful. But um, there were some great things in it, certainly. But, uh, but no, I finally landed on a movie that certainly our audience loves, and I think you love, and that is Edgar Wright's The World's End. Really? Yeah. Which I really responded to. And uh, BP award aside, I actually am not a huge fan of the fights, but I don't think that's not, I don't think that's necessarily a function of the stunts. That might be a way, a uh, function of how they are shot. Um, I, I like, first off, I'll say this. There's a lot of stuff I like, as there always is with his stuff. And I love Simon Pegg's character. I love his performance. Uh, I think it's amazing. I like Nick Frost. I like pretty much all the acting. Um, and as always, I like the way Edgar Wright cuts to as a punchline, which is astounding. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but first off, I found the the uh, the big fights to be fairly, uh, for the most part, 
monotonous every once in a while there'd be like a little a little spark of like a joke or something it's like oh i like that like but when he's trying to take a sip of the beer yeah yeah, yeah. It's stuff like that. it's like okay there we go but for, but the rest of the time it's just like all right this is just going to keep it, it's almost like the the big fights in uh, the original pirates of the caribbean it's like all right well these pirates are undead <laughs> they're just going to keep coming like y- you need to figure out a new strategy here um so there's that but there again there's plenty of stuff i like uh until that ending comes along and man like and i don't mean the ending where we finally see uh, what is the main character's name i don't recall uh i don't remember anything. okay well i'll just say simon's Pe- simon peg Car- simon peg's character like when we reveal when we finally see like who he really is and just how desperate his life has become i love that it's a really and it's done purely visually which i like mm-hmm. um but then like when they finally realize what they're dealing with and then simon Pegg's character is like arguing against i don't want to spoil anything but arguing yeah. against the i'll just say the main antagonist i'll put uh-huh. it that way and he just everything that the uh oh hell what's the trilogy called cornetto yeah everything the tor- the cornetto trilogy has been about they just just throw it all out there in this last bit of dialogue that is so i think obvious still kind of amusing but just so just so damn obvious and then the weird like the epilogue where it's uh, didn't work for me at all and i here's the thing um i will agree that it's my least favorite edgar wright film mm -hmm. i saw it twice because i had some of these problems the first time i saw it as well i saw it twice and i found that I, i found a certain maybe um bitter irony to the epilogue mm-hmm. in that uh it's um a reflection of we had three movies of this certain these philosophies of life that you're talking about and look where it got us so it, it's almost like not backpedaling but uh turning the camera around on itself the trilogy is sort of looking back at it like being self-reflective and saying maybe we weren't right about everything at the end of the at the end of the third movie yeah but at the same time like during that epilogue like simon Pegg's character who is who is the mouthpiece for this philosophy in the epilogue he's basically a hero he's got his shit together more than anybody else Mm -hmm. and like and so that hardly seems like a condemnation of the of the of the worldview and i'm not asking them to condemn that worldview he's okay we're not going to spoil the plot but i guess this is a bit of a spoiler yeah yeah what it means there's two things that go on at the end. Mm-hmm. One, he's reverted. He's got everything he wanted, which was bad. Yes. You know, he gets to be the old him forever. He gets to never grow up. Oh, I see what you mean. Okay, yes. So that's that's he's a hero, but in a way that's kind of pathetic. But there's a one ray of hope in that he's sober. He orders water. And that's a that's a that's a big part of the humanity. That that scene means so much to me. That that there's a part of like us being like, Oh, I guess he just isn't ever going to change. And then we get this one little hope that, Oh, he can change. Maybe he can't. And part, a big part of the movie is he can't be forced to change all at once. That's a big part of the theme of the movie. Right. Um, and that, uh, so I, anyway, it, it's, there's, that, there's hope at the end. That stuff. No, that I'm fine. I, I'm not saying I want a film that is, uh, that is hopeless by any stretch, but, uh, uh, and I like that. I think that's a nice moment. But then there at the end, like he's basically like this crusader fighting against, uh, people that were uh, fighting against prejudice and such right. and stuff like that. And part of me is like, what the hell does that have to do with anything? <laughs> like, 
I mean, aside from, uh, aside from, you know, I mean, these are films that fight against the concept. They don't fight against the concept of institutions, but they acknowledge the, the idea of, uh, what's the word? Um, Conformity, pardon me, uh-huh. uh, like fights against the idea of conformity, uh, just blind conformity. And I think there's probably a certain degree of prejudice that comes out of just blind conformity because then there's the people that don't. Uh, and he seems to be fighting against that perpetually. And he goes from somebody who that's the thing. He's been fighting conformity his entire life and it has gotten him not merely nowhere, but like into a very bad place. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying the film should necessarily, I think, I think the film, uh, for lack of a better term, I think it takes him to task for that to a certain point. But then after that, the very same characteristic uh, is then makes him like the big. Ah, I, I, I do not want to like, spoil this. This thing. is sort of like the Wolf of Wall Street thing is that I think you need to see how the character the movie is seeing is showing us the character the way he sees himself. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think it's OK for us to step back a little bit and say, yeah, he's being portrayed. This this scene at the end is clearly He's clearly framed and everything in a hero way. He's acting in a hero way. But I think the movie is trying to trust us enough to say this, he's a hero in his own mind. And this is kind of a pathetic, this is, this is a, uh, he's kind of fallen back on something a little sad. And I think you and I have stumbled across the girl with the dragon tattoo again, uh-huh. uh, which is, I think the film is 100% on board with him and you think that it actually is not. Yeah. Um, so, but that's the thing. So, uh, and I knew that, and I know that I'm definitely in the minority. That's the thing. I still like the movie a lot. <laughs> it made me laugh quite a bit, and it was very effective in many this ways. Big glare that you feel that everyone ignored. Is that why it's on your overrated thing? I think so. Yeah, because yeah, because almost everyone I talk to, ta- this ending is worth talking about. Oh, no question about but it. Yeah, it, in the interest of like avoiding spoilers, maybe that's maybe that's part of why it hasn't been talked about enough. <laughs> yeah, and maybe it's yeah, maybe I shouldn't have picked God, it for my yes. overrated because we can't talk about it. Who cares? We okay. talked about it enough. All right, so moving on to a little bit of positivity. Yes, it. underrated. Now here's the thing: I did this last year, where I have a couple movies within my top one within my top ten and one within my honorable mention that I think are. Um, underrated movies, mm-hmm. but I want to save those. Yeah. So this is this is essentially the this category is most underrated movie that isn't a part of my top fifteen movies of the year. Uh, yes, uh, and I'm going to go with a movie that it almost pains me to say it because I resisted watching it when it came out for a long time after. But Michael Bay's Pain and Gain is okay. the most underrated movie of the year. Okay, that's not the other two movies that I'll talk about later, which I still haven't seen, and not because I'm not interested. I just haven't had the time. It I, and it um, it falters. I think about halfway through, and its second hour. It, uh, to, I mean, this is an oft-used cliche, but it really runs out of steam. Mm-hmm. You really can feel it, sort of getting to a point about halfway through where it's sort of made all the points it's gonna make, mm-hmm. and then just keeps repeating itself for an hour. Um, and, and so I didn't really like the second hour of the movie that much, but that first hour is pretty unbelievable. If it kept that up, if it kept me that not, it literally did keep that up and that's actually a bad thing cause it didn't mm-hmm. grow at all from that point. But if it kept being that exciting and refreshing and hilarious and, uh, uh, you know, unsettling and, uh, all the things it is for the first hour, it would very likely be in my top 10 movies of the year. Hmm. All right. Yeah, it's it's a movie that uh I mean everyone I everyone I know that has seen it uh has liked it certainly more than they expected to except of course for Scott Nye who I'm sure expected it expected right, to yeah. love it as much as he did. Wouldn't um, it be funny if this was the one that Scott didn't like? It's not true. <laughs> he loved it. But. Yeah, that would be no. That would uh 
what's the one i think he doesn't like transformers 2 that's the that's the one he hates but uh but yeah okay so um my underrated and i'll just kind of i'll kind of skim over because i think i've talked about in the past is uh saving mr banks uh a film that uh, a lot of again i didn't see uh, yeah a lot of critics didn't care for it um some people really liked it and i i i'd be lying if i you know if i said that i loved all of it um i think there are times when it's you know kind of hokey and certainly uh they put a nice layer of glossy on it and and that sort of thing um but underneath it all it really is okay uh i believe this is a what i incorporated into my review it's really that kind of that idea of a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down and i think so many people focused on the sugar that they (laughs) i think they fail to recognize like there's some major stuff going on here um primarily just this idea of how people cope with past pain and even current pain uh this idea that whether it be something that your parents have done or just something just the the hand you've been dealt because Yes, we have uh, uh, Mrs. Travers and we've got Walt Disney and all that. But we also have Paul Giamatti's character, who's just a chauffeur. We have B.J. Novak's character, who uh, walks with a cane because he got shot in the war. And some things are called attention to, some things aren't. But you actually see just how many of these characters are genuinely wounded, sometimes physically, sometimes emotionally. And the things that we cling to in order to keep that those wounds from overwhelming us to the point that maybe the things we're clinging to are hurting us, uh, quite a bit themselves. And so I thought, and I think it's, I think it's definitely all there, especially when you see that these, even these supporting characters, um, have something going on. And there are scenes of like genuine that are, that are genuinely touching. Um, and it's just a cast that is uniformly great. And it's just, it's it certainly is not a perfect film, but I think it was grossly underrated because I think people were so focused on, well, this is, you know, and I think even a uh, friend of the show, uh, Amy Nicholson, focused on like, well, who, was it PL, PL Travers? Mm-hmm. Uh, like who PL Travers like really was in the film was like, oh, but it's, and said, you know, she's so much more than this movie makes her out to be. It's like, okay, that's fine. Sure. Uh, I hate to say, but I don't care. Um you that's know, not, you're saying that's not the movie they're making. That's not the movie they're making. And if they if they had attempted to make a biography of P.L. Travers and they said, this is the true story. And admittedly, they, they do uh, tout Saving Mr. Banks as being a true story. But like, if they put it that way, then and then it was just as glossy and sprightly as Saving Mr. Banks, then yeah, I, I get it. But this is a very specific story that they're making. And it's one of those things where they took certainly they're making Walt Disney look good, but not great. They do make him look plenty manipulative. Um, but they took a true story and chain and changed it a little bit so that they could explore themes that are inherent in that story, but they wanted to explore it in a deeper way. And so I'm okay with, with manipulating, manipulating reality. Like you to me, it's like that before. We yeah. Okay if you can shoot Hitler in the face, like in, in glorious uh-huh. bastards, you can do <laughs> yeah. whatever you want. Yeah. Okay, so let's get into our honorable mentions. And I think the way to do this, not that I'm just going to run through without you chiming in, but I think I'm going to do my five and then you do your five. Fair enough. And we can chime in. We have something to say. but I'll just say thumbs up, it, thumbs down. No, we can chime in more than that if you want. But if we go back and forth, then we might as well be doing a time uh, right. 15. It'll take us forever. Yeah. So um, 
my first honorable mention. I don't know if you have seen it yet. I think you'd be, I'd find it very interesting. Uh, but it's Park Chan Wook's Stoker. Haven't seen it. Um, it's 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 beautiful to look at. It is. Um, given some of the movies in my top 10, this is going to be saying something. It's probably the weirdest movie of the year. Okay. Uh, and it's weird in the way that I like weird in that it's not like, uh, I can't think of an example. It's, it's, it's not, uh, I really can't find an example. I'm trying to think. It's not a movie that's like, look at how weird I am. Yeah. Self-consciously weird. Yeah. Like wearing it on its sleeve is like some yes. kind of badge of honor. Yes. It's a movie that is theoretically sort of a straightforward story. Um, basically, Mia Vashikovsky plays a, a a young woman, a teenage, a high schooler whose father dies and her uncle, whom she's never met, comes to the funeral and ends up, he's been living abroad and he ends up staying with them and he may not be what he seems. Okay. It's a very sort of, I don't know, it could be a Hitchcock type of thriller. It could be. It does sound uh, a little Hitchcock. Yeah. yeah. It could be a number of those things. And if you just hit the story points, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. But everything about the way it's presented is so off. And part of that is um, the, the the cinematography and the use of sound that, it, that it's so uh, lush and vibrant as to be almost uh, extra real, hyper real, maybe, mm-hmm. in a way. Uh, and the the performance by, I'm drawing a blank on his name, Matthew Good, is that, um, uh, you haven't seen the movie, so you don't know. Uh but the guy who plays the uncle and all three performances is Mia Vashikovska and Nicole Kidman, and I want to say Matthew Good is his name. Is that the dude from uh, Matchpoint? He's in Matchpoint. Yes, he's yeah, also yes, in. Matthew Good. He's also in Watchmen. Uh, okay. And the he Lookout. The Lookout. Yeah, um, I forgot he was in Watchmen. That's right. Uh, anyway, I'm not going to go into too much for that, but I will say again, it is the weirdest movie of the year. Oh boy. Okay. Number uh, my next honorable mention is um, a film that. Um, could get, we don't do like sort of underseen as a topic, as a category, but, uh, a, 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 um, an English film called the selfish giant mm-hmm. directed by a woman named Cleo Barnard or Barnard. I'm not sure how you say her name. She's okay. a documentarian who got some acclaim a year or two ago with a documentary called the Arbor that I didn't see, oh, yes, but yes. That I read a lot about, and this is her first non-documentary the first mm-hmm. narrative feature uh and it is very loosely inspired by um the oscar wilde story the selfish giant but this is a modern day uh tale about sort of it's very much in the sort of uh ken loach uh you know uh what milieu within you know the the sort of poor northern england uh kids like really just hopelessly poor kids uh and it's these two kids who are friends. One's a big guy but shy, and one is a little guy who's a who is full of anger and vitriol, and definitely has some. He's also on some medications because he has some uh, hyperactivity uh, issues. And they drop out slash get kicked out of school and start going essentially to work illegally, work stealing cable and metal and stuff from sites. Uh, and selling it to the sort of the metal yard who's and, and the the guy the guy who runs the metal yard is named kitten and uh he's sort of like a i guess you'd he, in this he's sort of like a fagin type character okay only these are only kids there's a, there's other characters um who steal for him including the guy who played finch on the office um <laughs> i don't know if you remember oh, oh chris finch yeah, yeah yeah finchy um he's in it uh and uh it's 
a really, really beautiful movie. It's sort of, I talked last week about that documentary, These Birds Walk. This mm-hmm. is sort of a narrative feature that gets, like, these kids are in really horrible circumstances. Their lives are just dreadfully horrible. But it's not a movie that wallows in that. It does, it doesn't give short shrift to that either. But it shows the humanity of these kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, you know, I won't spoil particularly, but most reviews have mentioned that the film does take a heartbreakingly, gut-wrenchingly tragic turn at uh. a certain point. Um, I think I, I watched like a big part of the last third of the movie with my hand clapped over my mouth because I was oh. so upset by what had happened. Um, oh, now I let my list close on my phone so I don't remember what my next uh, honorable mention is. Here we go. Here we go. Oh, this one might actually end up being on your top ten, but it's the Coen Brothers Inside Lewin Davis. Yeah, let's move on. We'll move on from that. Okay, my next one is the film Blue Ruin. Okay. Which I think... It's one of those films that we might end up seeing on a lot of, on some people's top ten lists for 2014 because oh, it's not okay. getting a wide release. But I saw it at AFI Fest um, in in November, so uh, you know, suck it. I get to call it a 2013 film because when it came out, the director's name is Jeremy Saulnier. Saulnier, um, and I talked about it some when we did our AFI Fest uh, recap. But basically, it's um, it, it's a it's a sort of uh, you know, uh, what's what I'm looking for? Lean and mean genre movie that is uh, very violent and also very funny and very melancholy. But it's a, it's, uh, you know, you talk about sometimes the Christian movies you see and how they uh, shoot themselves in the foot in a way by not being willing to display the things that they're condemning. Right. Um, Blue Ruin is as anti-violent anti-violence a movie that i've seen Mm -hmm. but it's incredibly bloody because basically the idea is there's this guy he's homeless we later found out uh we find out with only a few minutes in that um his parents were killed when he was a teenager uh murdered and he sort of dropped out he couldn't function if they dropped out of society that's why he's homeless and there's a cop that he's friends with who tells him hey the guy who killed your who murdered your parents is getting out of jail i wanted you to hear it from me you know Mm -hmm. whatever and so he decides he's gonna go kill the guy and i won't give any spoilers from there but it just turns into uh one thing after another and just increasing levels of violence oh boy uh and uh it's but it's also very like i said it's very funny and melancholy and real bloody okay uh so that's that um and so i think i only have one more left on my honorable mentions and it's a movie that i also saw at a film festival at AFI, no, that was AFI at uh, Los Angeles Film Festival, and this is also one that I hope you will see on some 2014 lists because I hope it gets a wider release. I know it's going to be playing the European Union Film Festival in Chicago uh, coming up here. Uh, it's a documentary called "The Expedition to the End of the World." Oh yeah, which uh, if those I, I can't imagine people remember our LAFF uh, re- recap episode, uh, so I will give another sort of uh, quick once over what the movie's about. Uh, it is so. There's there, there are these these glaciers uh, north of I guess Greenland or whatever there are glaciers um, that uh, basically people can't haven't been able to get to. They used to be they used to be like people there and stuff, mm-hmm. and then you know geology shifts and stuff, and glaciers have uh, cut these cut this part of the world off for thousands of years. Hmm. But now because of you know warming waters and stuff there's about a two or three week window a year when you can get in and out of there 
All right. So, Thank you, global warming, right? <laughs> yeah. So a team, and this is where it gets very interesting, a team of scientists and artists take uh, a boat right. and stay up there for a couple weeks exploring. And mostly, like, you don't, it's not a lot of, you don't see a lot of people doing science. And you don't see a whole <laughs> lot of people doing art. It's mostly them talking about uh, you know, the, the 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 title has two meanings. It's the expedition to the end of the world because they're going to these, these far north reaches. Mm-hmm. But they're also talking a lot, given that it's, you know, global warming or climate change or whatever has allowed them to get there. They're talking about a lot about the end of the world. Uh, and um, from both a dry scientific point of view and from uh, a sort of uh, ponderous and maybe even navel-gazing artistic point of view. And there's a lot of sniping back and forth. It's a very funny movie hmm. uh, as well. Um, they they they're so, they sort of gently rib one another. There's great a great uh, conversation where one of the scientists is saying that the only thing that artists are good at is not knowing anything because they have to not know in order to try and make their art. Uh, but he's basically it's this he has this long sort of almost like he's amused like hey I just thought of this but it's like five minutes of him just calling all the artists stupid. That's uh, that's one of many very funny. Uh, very funny uh, sequences. And one of the women scientists wears a T-shirt that says in big block, bold block letters in English, fuck everything and become a pirate, uh, which I, right. I hope the movie catches on and that you can buy uh, that <laughs> shirt uh, online and mass. So those are my honorable mentions. All right. So uh, hopefully I saw I one. Seen, I saw one of those. <laughs> yeah. And it's in your top 10. So yeah. I didn't get to say anything. All right. Hopefully so I won't have seen any of yours. I don't think you've seen a lot of them. Actually. I did a good job this year, though. The only big thing that I'm missing is The Wind Rises, I think. Yeah, I missed out on a couple things. I didn't see Spring Breakers. Uh, I didn't see Pain and Gain. I didn't see Stoker. I think I would have liked it. Um, it's on DVD. And there's there's probably some others that I that I <laughs> didn't see that I've... Our, our friend, friend of the show, Patrick Starr, said mm-hmm. that you can definitely get a previously viewed stoker blu-ray at amoeba because apparently a lot of people bought it and didn't like it (laughs) there are stacks of previously viewed stoker blu-rays that's uh oddly specific okay uh terrence malick's to the wonder i didn't see it you did not see it okay uh terrence malick is a filmmaker that uh fascinates me because he i i will not say that he's anti-intellectual but he seems fascinated with okay how do i put emotion on screen or not even emotion feelings just a feeling how do i put that on screen and just and he rightly assumes that all right dialogue is gonna have to be at a minimum for this one um and so uh and so sometimes it's and and with uh with to the wonder you have this feeling of of what it is to be in a relationship, which is sometimes it can be ethereal and wonderful and just, you cannot put into words how amazing it is. Um, I often have a hard time describing what it is to be married from an emotional standpoint. Um, but then also that comes with frustration. Like the, one of the, one of the downsides of being as vulnerable to this other person as you can be is they know exactly how to hurt you. And when they feel like they want to, they can, and they do. And it's, but then reconciliation and forgiveness, like it's just, it's a movie all about that and all about, and about how that feels. It's not interested in talking about from an intellectual standpoint, like, okay, well, what does forgiveness mean? What does love mean? What does pain mean? It, it asks, how does it feel? And it is, 
really astounding. And, and it really focuses in on forgiveness. There have been a number of people who have said that I should do a more than one lesson episode about it. And I'm reluctant to do so because for the same reason, I'm reluctant to do a more than one lesson episode about anything, any Terrence Malick film, which is like, what am I going to say about it? <laughs> the last, like, almost, I feel like almost the worst thing you can do with the Terrence Malick film is talk about it. Um, as strange as that may sound. Yeah. Well, as a guy who wrote, did you write the, a review of this for the website? Uh, no, I didn't. No, someone did. I'm yeah. Sure of it. Uh, but as a guy who, yeah, I had to write the Tree of Life review. It's it's tough. Yeah, it is tough to write about. Yeah, but it, yeah, and his but his movies are absolutely mem- uh, mesmerizing. Okay, uh, next up, The Wind Rises. Okay, which you didn't see. I um, was supposed to see it on Tuesday. Yeah, I got sick. I'm okay now. Oh, good. Keep your well wishes and your cards to yourself, <laughs> listeners. We do have a PO box for uh, you know sympathy oh, yeah. for you it, know get well cards and Tim Tams and other and gifts and I'm just saying somebody somebody has a birthday coming up. Um, That's right. Somebody so uh, okay, yeah, Wind Rises. So it's a fascinating film. It is not. I've seen three Miyazaki films. Unfortunately, uh, I need to see more. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I was saw, say, you mean it's unfortunate that you haven't seen more. Oh, yeah, oh absolutely. <laughs> like, unfor- unfortunately, I've sat through three of them. Yeah, that's, I keep waiting, keep waiting for him to get good. Um, yeah, it's, uh, so we, we've talked about it, uh, at length. It's, it's about the guy who, uh, designed the, I only know them as the, Z- the zero, the Japanese yeah. zero plane that was used as a very effective killing machine in World War II. Yeah. And, and if this is indeed Hayao Miyazaki's last film, which he has said it is going to be, but of course, filmmakers very seldom stay retired. Yeah, he could be pulling a soda bread on yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but uh, if that if this is the note he chooses to go out on, man, is it astounding. Why? Why did he choose this story? Because there are a lot of people... It's a, it's a, it is not an uncontroversial film. There yeah. are people who think like, why are we championing this guy for creating this killing machine? And it's like, well, the guy didn't want to create a killing machine. He wanted to just create the best airplane ever. And it got used for this other reason. And even as he was using it, even as he knew it was going to be used for this reason, he couldn't stop himself from doing the best thing. I was reminded by, I was reminded of uh, Colonel Nicholson in uh, Bridge on the River Kwai. That's what it makes me think of every like, time someone tells me about it. It's, and so like, what is it about this story that so resonates with Miyazaki that this is what he wants to go out on? You know, there are, there are plenty of movies that wind up being a director's last film. This is what he has decided will be his last film. So what does he want us to extrapolate from it? First off, it's beautiful. There's, there are fantasy sequences, but for the most part, it's just this very quiet story about somebody who desperately needs to create the thing he can, the one thing he can do, the thing he can contribute to the world. And, and I'm sure that resonated with Miyazaki quite a bit. Um, but yeah, it's, so it's it's gorgeous in the way that his movies always are, and it's quiet in the way that his movies often are, uh, or at least the two that I've seen. Um, uh, and and I think the reason that I love it so much is kind of external to the film. The film itself is all re- is fascinating, and and intriguing, and and I really loved watching it. But what's more interesting to me is thinking like, all right, this film has significance for the filmmaker. Now, of course, every film has significance for the filmmaker, but this one has a, this story has a special significance. What must it be? And I'm a, I'm a big proponent of trying not to bring stuff into a movie, but sometimes you can't help it. And the film certainly stands on it its own. You can't think about it after. 
That's true. Uh, so I don't mean to say that the film is only interesting in that respect. It's a, it's a fascinating movie that I think everyone will like, but this thing has given me, I mean, I saw it like probably three weeks, maybe a month ago, and I'm still thinking about like, what is it about this story? Like, and it made me think like, okay, maybe I should research Miyazaki and see like, is he a, like, does he have a problem? Do studios like approximate, you know, take his, his work and then use it for their own ends or something like that. It's like, right. cause to my knowledge, he has complete control. So like, what is it about? Did, it's didn't he, maybe it was someone else about, but I want to say he is the one who, when Miramax got the right to print princess Mononoke, mm-hmm. he sent Harvey Weinstein, a samurai sword with the note, no cuts. <laughs> Because that's something that Harvey Weinstein is famous for. Yes, yes, he is. Anyway, on the subject of final films, has there ever been a more fitting final film than A Prairie Home Companion? It's a movie that is... Strange, right? From beginning to end about death, and yeah. it ended up being his final film. And it it's winds really up... fascinating to think about. It's Yeah, it's, it's Altman's final film, and it winds up being undoubtedly an Altman film and then like, you know, the size of its cast and the, and kind of the general chaos of it, mm-hmm. but it's, and it winds up being about death while also being surprisingly optimistic. Yeah. Uh, not that I think of him as an optimistic filmmaker, but it's kind of neat that that's the note he goes out on. Yeah. And I, I'm happy with myself that I liked that movie from the beginning. Oh yeah. I feel like there are some people who didn't like it when it came out and then changed their opinion after he died. Uh, which I guess is okay. You, you change the way you sure. think about things, but I'm happy that I liked that movie from the beginning. Yeah. I mean, I liked as a fan of Altman. I mean, I watched and I was like, this is man, this is totally him. Why did he want to make this movie? Uh, and I didn't, and I don't mean that in a negative way. Um, okay. I do need to move on. Yep. Uh, next is a film that no one has seen and everyone should. It is Neil LeBute's some velvet morning. I assume you didn't see that one. I did not see it. Okay. You keep asking me uh, if I've watched it and I haven't. Yeah. I think, it's cause I, do I have an online screener? I think that, so. Yeah. That might've, it might've expired at this yeah, point, probably. but, um, but yeah, it's uh man. Oh man. Neil Butte. I would say he's hit and miss, but he's mostly hit. Like when he's on, when he is making a Neil Butte film, like your friends and neighbors, like right. in the company of men. Um, I can't think of any others at the moment. <laughs> I, I like shape of things. the shape of things and I'm a big fan of nurse Betty. Um, you know, I did not see the wicker man and then he did Lakeview Terrace, right? Yeah. That's what I was going to say is Lakeview Terrace is, uh, one of the most underrated. I don't know that it's a great movie, but it's sort of that thing where I feel like everyone dismissed it as one thing. I never saw it. And I, I feel like I would like to, it's a really cool movie and a really fascinating movie filled with great performances. Yeah. Uh, Labute is first and foremost a great writer, which doesn't surprise me because he comes out of uh, he comes out of the theater, and some Velvet Morning. It has two characters. It takes place in one one location. Uh, it feels like a play, and it is just about this man who has left his wife <coughs> to go be with his mistress. But of course, she hasn't been his mistress in a while, and they broke it off. Not amicably, mm-hmm. but he has still decided to leave his wife and be with this woman. And it's, what was that? That's just a funny premise. Yeah, it's, well, yeah, it is. That's the thing. And so it's funny as Neil Butte films often are. And also so tense and so just excruciating to watch another Neil Butte uh, special. Yeah. But, um, and I will say, unfortunately, I cannot remember the name of the actress. I believe it's Alice Eve. 
Does that sound right? That sounds like someone's name for sure. Um, I think she was in um, Star Trek Into Darkness. But, um, it is Alice Eve. Okay. I will confirm briefly or shortly, not briefly. Okay. It'll be both. Uh, that may, maybe not that second one, but, um, but yeah, so it's Alice Eve and Stanley Tucci, both of which do great, uh, do great, you know, turning great performances confirmed. She was in star Trek into dark. Okay. Uh, and she is very good. Uh, but what I will say is this is the best. I think Stanley Tucci, Tucci is a great actor, uh, who's turned in a lot of really great performances. I think this is the best performance I've ever seen from him. And I don't, oh. It, I've seen like it's stuff that I've never seen before. Like you watch this and you realize what he can do as an actor. It's like, Oh, he can like, he should be the, a major villain. He should have been Lex Luthor in a, <laughs> in a better Superman movie. Um, because he can play that he can play tension. He can play danger. He's not a man who looks particularly dangerous. He's rather skinny. Uh, but in this, the character hates himself so much for what he's done, and he's so put off by how this, how his mistress is responding to him, that he is just a bomb waiting to explode. And man, it is a pleasure to watch him. She is also good, and she's able to keep up with him uh, and shout him down when she needs to, and that is worth noting. But. I've never seen him play a part like this. I don't see, I, I've, I don't see characters like this very often. It's just so, it's so in the moment. And so it's such a lived in performance that like, if listeners, if you have the opportunity to see some velvet morning, take that opportunity because it's, it's just astounding the work that he's doing. Okay. But I do need to move on. Uh, next up is mud. Oh, I saw that one. Hey, I didn't know that. Yeah. All right. What'd you think of it? No, I, wait, we don't have time for that. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I'll throw it to you real quick. Uh, I, um, I, I liked it a lot. I like it more the more I think about it in retrospect as well. Yeah. It's not a film that I absolutely loved. Um, but there's a lot of stuff in it that I really like and really responded to. I like Jeff Nichols as a director. Um, it's interesting looking at, looking at pretty much all of my top 15, Almost all of them are the work of like a clear cut auteur. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jeff Nichols is getting there. Um, just the way that he chooses to explore the emotions of his characters. There's a rawness to it while also, especially in this, it, it has, for lack of a better term, an old timey feel. Um, it, like it, it yeah. seems like the kind of the story I, I and the character. Say- I don't know if you agree with me. I feel almost that it's more timeless than old time. That's maybe that's the way to put it. Yes. Because it feels, it feels like a fable almost. That is a great way to put it. Yes. It feels like it could have been a novel from the 1850s. It also feels like it could have been, uh, a film made in the 1930s. Like it just, it has that quality Mm -hmm. to it. It also feels like it could have been a stage play. Uh, there is a definitely a timeless quality to it. Uh, and there is, and the, and the fable thing works really well too. Um, and especially because it's told primarily from the point of view of two young boys, uh, who are, who are, they're not super young. They're starting to become adults. And I think that's key because they're starting, it's a, it's a weird difference between seeing them, seeing the world 
they're in a state of transition between seeing the world as they would like to see it and as uh, from a relatively sheltered standpoint into seeing the world as it is mm-hmm. as and you can see and that's kind of there's a little microcosm there in the relationship between Matthew McConaughey and Reese Witherspoon like yeah. and and the fact that the character of Mud is kind of a kid that never grew up even as he got older yeah. um, there's a lot of great stuff in there and Matthew McConaughey is doing great work too yeah you find um, something consistently with me like as I mentioned the selfless giant and i mentioned last week these birds walk seeing kids in a way that isn't sugar-coated seeing kids that actually makes me feel like this is what it was like when i was a kid you know yeah we get these two like what are they like 11 and 12 roughly yeah and like in one of the first scenes they're talking about the girls at school and who like has the best hits or whatever yeah uh and like it's not the way you normally see 11 and 12 year olds on screen, but it's much closer to the way that I remember her 11 and 12 year old boys talking when I was that age. Yeah. Unfortunately. Sorry, everybody. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's, that's, that's a movie I really enjoyed. And then, uh, so my last honorable mention is I never know how you say his last name. Shane Carruth. I think so. Shane Carruth's upstream color. Why don't we, why don't we hold off on that? Fair enough. Okay. So now let's get into our top 10 proper. All right. Let's get into it again. All right. Let's get further into it. Let's pull back the uh, what have, what have you. Let's pull back the what have you. <laughs> All right. Um, and hopefully this will go a little quick because we might have some of the same ones. I th- Especially, yeah, I think we will. So um, my number 10 is Richard Linklater's Before Midnight. Which I didn't see. Oh, really? I haven't seen any of them. That is, I feel like that's something that I have known about you in the past and that I keep forgetting because it just seems, they just seem like your kind of movies. Oh, no like question about, about it. Like Kung Fu Hustle. Obviously, these movies have a lot in common with Kung Fu Hustle. Um, and I'm super excited now that this one has come out. It's like, all right, now I can watch all three of them yeah. in rapid succession. Maybe I'll give them, maybe I'll watch like one per day. But that's, I don't, I don't even know if that's really like the best way to, I mean, I, it's not a bad way to see them, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, and I obviously didn't, I didn't see before, I always get the, before Sunrise is yeah. the first one. I didn't see that when it came out. Right. I saw that um closer to when before sunset came out when i heard before sunset was coming out so it only been a few months in Mm -hmm. between but then i got to spend the nine years between before sunset and before midnight uh and i got to change in a way i'm sort of like age wise i'm sort of one movie behind these characters yeah like i'm as old now as they were in before sunset yeah um but uh it's um it, it, it really does sort of work as i don't even know if it is a trilogy i like you say that you can watch all of them but uh i don't think there's any reason we can be sure that there won't be another one in nine more years yeah um it leaves itself open to that and i don't think anyone would complain if there was what would the next one be before I, what else what else do we have i feel like before the planet of the apes <laughs> right but you could go with like before last call but that, <laughs> at this point they're in their they're 50 i don't know if they're yeah. like closing out closing down a bar I don't know what's between midnight and sunrise. Midnight and sunrise. Because then you then because at that point you overlap. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Oh well. Anyway, uh, they'll find something. I'm sure. Yeah, they'll figure it out. Uh, They're clever. But uh, this is a movie that is. Uh, well, it's uh, it's it's a blend of sort of the first two movies because the first movie takes place over the course of an entire night. Mm-hmm. The second movie is in real time. It's 90 minutes or whatever. Like, that's how long the movie takes. Mm -hmm. Um, 
this one technically takes place over the course of a day, but at about the halfway point, you get into real time. Okay. Um, so you've got like a morning, him dropping his son off at the airport, his son from his previous marriage, um, the ride back, you have them making lunch. They have lunch with some friends. Yeah. This, another thing that's different about this one is there are long stretches of time where it's not just them talking. Hmm. It's a whole group of people talking. Um, and, uh, I think that sort of speaks to maybe what they're trying to say about, about growing up that they, they can't. They have responsibilities and they have daughters now. They they can't spend all this time just being um I'll use the word I used earlier in the episode, navel gazing. They can't just like talk about themselves for all this time because they have shit to do and they have responsibilities. And it's a very in that way it's a very different movie. But it's a nice choice that he makes, having this like it opens instead of opening with Jesse and Celine, it opens with Jesse and his son. Mm-hmm. And so you've got a whole conversation with them. And then he joins Celine and you see, oh, they have two daughters. And then it's that conversation. And then it's with the other people at this sort of, like, uh, villa they're staying at in, uh, and I can't remember where they are. Greece? I want to say Greece. I could be wrong. Um, uh, and by delaying the point until the halfway point when they get to, the other couple's going to watch their kids and they get to spend one night, a vacation within their vacation where they're spending one night at a hotel room alone without their kids. And so they start walking from the house they're all staying at to the hotel room and they just start talking and it's like this great it's like we've waited we waited nine years for it to come back and now richard linkletter and company made us wait nine years and half a movie and that just that extra little wait makes it all the more sort of uh uh welcoming when it happens when you they get into these conversations but then that doesn't turn into the whole movie it takes Mm -hmm. another turn where you realize you know the first movie they had just met each other in the second movie, they hadn't seen each other for nine years, and they reconnected. This time, they've seen each other every day almost yeah. for the nine years in between, and it's not all just getting to know you and flirting. There's there's almost no flirting. They're an you know established, you might say, entrenched married couple at this point, yeah. and it turns uh, like you were saying about to the wonder in marriage. Uh, is that the movie you were talking about? To the wonder, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it turns pretty uh, hostile <laughs> at, at, at a certain point, and it still has the same. They're still recognizably Jesse and Celine, um, and I, I think you know there's there's movies from 2005. You know, you and I were already adults. I mean, I might not have been the most adult person, but you and I were already adults in 2005, mm-hmm. right? Or 2004? Is that when the last? That's four. Yeah, yeah 2004. But there are movies from the, because we were already adults. There are movies that came out in two thousand four that you and I still maybe kind of think of as new movies or newer movies. Yeah. You know? And I think this is a really great sort of uh, I don't know if wake up call is a cliched way of saying it, but uh, yeah, a wake up call to the fact that um, nine years have passed. We're we're getting older. We're different people than we were then. Uh, and uh, I, I I think there's um, I don't know if. If Stoker was the weirdest movie of the year, um, Before Midnight might be the most realistic or maybe the most honest movie of the year. Yeah. So what you're saying is to try to replicate it, I should watch Before Sunrise tomorrow, Before Sunset in nine years, Uh and then another nine years after that. It's like, all right, time to top this off. Yeah. 
But by then, there will have been two more. <laughs> oh, damn it. I missed my chance. You'll always be 18 years behind. And let me ask you this, and this is, this is not usually a reason for me to not see a movie. I am not necessarily a big Ethan Hawke fan uh, as an I, actor. I think that if you had seen the other films, you would not feel that way. Okay. Because I think that uh, Ethan Hawke is... His the three best films, the three best performances of his career are these three films. Okay, fair enough. All right, so my number ten is Woody Allen's Blue Jasmine. Okay, much yeah. much to my surprise, to be honest with you, uh, that hung out that that hung pretty pretty close to my top uh, movies for a while, and so until I started like catching up on stuff toward the end of the year. Yeah, the reason that I say surprisingly is because there's not a lot of like. It's not a perfect film. There are some scenes that I think are really clunky. I think the beginning has a little too much exposition. Well, there's my least favorite scene in the whole movie. I don't know if I talked about it on this podcast, um, but uh, I've talked about it on other podcasts, I know. But uh, there's a scene where it's important story-wise that Peter Sarsgaard's character find out a number of things. Yeah. So he just has Andrew Dice Clay walk up to them on the street and say all the stuff he needs. Yeah. To, it's the most... It's yeah. like the laziest scene. Yeah, he practically, uh, you know, dropped him from the rafters on ropes <laughs> yeah. and said, okay, we need something to happen here. Oh, here we go. Yeah. Yeah. It, and it, it, the scene drove me crazy. Yeah, it really frustrated even me. Even though is great, even in that scene. But yeah. yeah, yeah, all three of them are great in that scene, but it, it did seem, it's like, there's got to be another way to do this, right? Yeah. Like, I don't know, just... Did you have a deadline to meet or something? <laughs> I'm pretty sure they'll push it back for you. Um but I will say that uh, that there is like when Woody Allen is on as a director and as a writer, like I, there there's nobody better, especially when it comes to dealing with like human frailty and dealing with it in a funny way while also being remarkably tragic. And I feel like Jasmine is one of his one of his best characters, precisely because she's so specific. She seems like. You know, you watch a lot of his movies and you feel like, I feel like I've seen this character, certainly the the Allen character, but like, it's like, I feel like I've seen this character before or that character before. I feel like I haven't seen her character before, at least not in one of his films. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I don't want to make it just about her. It's, it's such a, I would say the film is cynical, but I feel like there's a, often a certain degree of calculation to cynicism and a certain degree of coldness. This is more a film that is like, heartbroken like it looks at how people are and it sees that people are not great like people are weak and manipulative and vengeful and uh disloyal like they're all of these things yeah and and selfish of course yeah and and he tackled in what 90 100 minutes whatever something that the Sopranos spent seven years on which is that uh they're very unwilling to change yeah and And not just jasmine other characters as well oh absolutely and that's yeah i like i like it partially because so many of the other characters are allowed to be like fully developed characters um and also, it's Sally Hawkins does a great job. Bobby Cannavale, his character is written well, and I lo- I love him as an actor as well. Um, and I uh, uh, peek behind the curtain, everybody. I was the only one to do this, but I did submit Max Casella for supporting actor. Uh, sorry for uh, for best cameo for the BPs for Blue Jasmine because I thought he was amazing. 
He's also yeah. amazing in Inside Lewin Davis. It should yes. be noted. He also has a brief scene in another Woody Allen starring film called, I don't know if he's the star, but it's a film called Fading Gigolo that John Turturro oh, okay. uh, directed that Woody Allen has a large role in. Yeah. Max Casella has a very small role in it. I is saw it, it the other day. Is he good? He's he's fine. It's oh. not a very important role. Oh, fair enough. Um, and it's a, just an okay movie. Anyway. But so it, it it acknowledges all of these very negative things about humanity, but it doesn't say like, yeah, this is how it is. It genuinely is upset at that. It feels like it feels like the kind of movie that only an older filmmaker could make, because if he were younger, it would just feel there'd be almost a jaded quality to it. This seems more like a almost like a grieving over the acknowledgement of what people actually are. It reminds, it reminds me what you're saying. That reminds me of something we said a couple weeks ago about before, before the devil knows you're dead. In that, um, that's a movie that's cynical in the way of someone who's earned their cynicism. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I see what you're saying here. Now, to go back to um, not making it all about Jasmine, I will say that when I think of this movie, the first five things I think of are Kate Blanchett's performance. Yeah, and I think a big part of that is um, that uh, the. <laughs> In a way, the character is, or maybe could be, little more than a collection of ticks. Uh, th- there are so many, there's so many landmines in the performance, like in, in the way this character could be performed. Mm-hmm. That Kate Blanchett navigates uh, perfectly and makes a real character who is, um, who is a collection of ticks in a lot of ways, and is uh, you know very close to losing her mind. Yeah, uh, but is also very human and very funny. Oh, absolutely. And, and you could, and that's the thing, you could look at the character and just say, well, all right, she's kind of crazy. I'm just going to play that. Yeah. But Kate Blanchett is a smart enough actress that she understands that. Yeah. But what, where did that come from? And what is, what is she, what remains from whom, from the person she used to be? Uh, and just mixing that in with the person that she uh, that she is becoming, and then by the end of the film, she has become that person. If you got um, uh, so it, she she does change, but uh, in a bad way. Yeah. Um, if you got Kate Blanchett's character from Blue Jasmine mm-hmm. and Jennifer Lawrence's character from American Hustle in a room together, they'd torch the building. <laughs> <laughs> it would be a mess. Yeah, it's that. Anyway. It, I feel bad that yeah, I haven't talked much about Kate Blanchett because part of me is like, well, that's that's the only press the film seems to be getting. Uh, right, there's a lot of really good things, you know. But there's a lot. But she is certainly front and center. Uh, like she is the reason that the film works. Not a lot of other actresses could have pulled that off. And it's San Francisco, which is not something you see very often in a Woody Allen film. Yeah, good for them. <laughs> so yeah, Blue Jasmine. Moving Although on. Apparently, uh, I'm not the first person to bring this up. Apparently. Woody Allen has spent so much time in New York that he thinks blue collar people in San Francisco still talk like New Yorkers. <laughs> yeah. Again, that's, that's some of the problem. That's some of the thing that I have with him is that like, even when he writes a, a very unique character, the world around that character is still very familiar to Woody yeah. Allen fans. Um, all right. Um, my number nine, this would have, this is my most underrated movie of the year. I said there would oh, okay. be two. One was Stoker. The other one was this. Um, it was underrated. It was underseen, and by the few who did see it, it was not very well appreciated. To the point where I'd read reviews after I watched it and be like, "Was I like drunk or something? Like, how did I like this so much when so many people found it so stupid and trite?" Uh, and it's a film that I'm forgetting the name of the director, but it's called this. It's called Scenic Route. Oh yes, okay. Uh, and it stars Josh Duhamel and the guy from Balls of Fury. What's his name? Dan. 
Oh, well. Uh, and it is kind of like uh, Dan Fogler is his name. That's it. Um, you were talking about Some Velvet Morning just being two characters. This is, it does have a couple of other very small parts, but it's essentially two characters. Mm-hmm. The premise of the movie is that Josh Duhamel and Dan Fogler, um, oh, the directors, uh, co-directors, I'm assuming brothers, uh, Kevin and Michael Getz. Anyway, uh, but it's written by Kyle Killen, who is mostly known as a guy who creates TV shows that are critically acclaimed and then get canceled. Oh, okay. He did Lone Star. <laughs> oh, all right. He did two episodes, and he did Awake, which I think got a full season with Jason Isaacs. Okay. Uh, anyway, um, but this is uh, much... Those are very sort of high-concept shows. This is... Um, I guess you could call it kind of high-concept, but basically the idea is Josh Duhamel and Dan Fogler play old friends who haven't seen each other in a long time. Mm-hmm. They were idealistic young... Uh, people together yeah josh Duhamel has since gone the whole like gotten a career wife kids house in the suburbs type of route uh and dan fogler is still the struggling uh unemployed screenwriter wannabe guy uh, and they haven't seen each other in a long time they decided to take a road trip together uh, uh through the desert and they decide to take the scenic route and then their car breaks down and they are in the middle of nowhere and stuck with only one another and their decade or so of resentments. Okay. Um, and uh, I guess there, there aren't maybe a lot of surprises in where it goes, but that's not a bad thing mm-hmm. necessarily. Uh, it's, uh, you know, in as much as it's a movie that exists in the words, because it's a very talky movie, it also has a great sense of place and of heat and of... Um, dehydration is you know something that is a difficult thing to get across yeah um uh but you know there's uh there's a scene this this isn't really a spoiler i guess it's only people who are super sensitive about spoilers would bother this there's a scene where they've gone and huddled in a ditch to stay out of the out of the elements uh overnight the next morning the sun's come up they're still asleep in this ditch and a car a truck a utility truck with a big cooler full of water on the back Mm -hmm. pulls up and sees their truck parked there doesn't know they're sleeping three feet away the guy pulls up and looks around and you see just triplets of water coming off of this cooler onto the hot pavement he doesn't (laughs) see them sleeping there and he drives away this is after they've been out there for 48 hours or so um it's one of the most frustrating uh you know uh, and effective scenes uh, uh of the year uh in a movie but uh Anyway, I don't want to go too much into, you know, so much comes up. Uh, but it does one thing. I said there are no surprises, but there is one thing that's uh, that I really liked is that it does the thing where, or you think it's doing the thing where it, like, starts with the ending. You see them, like, getting in a big fight, like, beating the shit out of each other, you know, um, hitting each other with, like, shovels and stuff, like a really violent fight. And then it flashes back. And so then, you're oh, you're like, oh, so how is it going to get... That's where it's. That's where we're ending up. That's where we're going to. Yeah. And then it gets there about halfway through the film, and then you're left thinking, "How much worse is this going to get?" Yeah. I think that's a really smart move. It's a really effective uh, movie. That um, I'm, I'm just finding it really hard because it has an ending that is, I guess, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, inconclusive, maybe. Okay. And so it's hard for me to talk about how much I love the movie and how effective it was for me without talking specifically about how it ends. Uh, but I think it, it does the inconclusive ending in a way that is where, um, you can have your opinions on what really happened, 
but that's not if that were the most important thing i think that's a little trite yeah i don't think that's the most important thing at all it's how you feel about it at the end okay and uh i think it pulls that off very well all right okay yeah uh i, I mean i heard frankly i had heard only bad things about it but then when you told me yeah. when you you know because you've been talking about it a fair amount the last few months yeah. and everything you say about it's like this does sound like the kind of thing i would enjoy um because you know what, I actually, uh, what I've seen da- uh, Dan Fogler in, I've liked quite a bit. Uh, he was in a movie called, uh, is it called Take Me Home Tonight? Is yeah. that the one? Yeah. With uh, Topher, Topher Grace. Grace. and Anna Faris. Yeah, the movie's not very good. Uh, but he's great in it. So I really, he, he has a, a kind of a an edge to, an edgy type of energy to him that I like quite a bit. He also had a recurring character in season one of Hannibal. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I saw the first two episodes and the last three. I guess he's somewhere in the middle there. <laughs> yeah, that's a bit of a spoiler. He will not be in season two of Animal. Okay, fair enough. All right, my number nine, I feel like we're going to have to move on from this one, uh, is The Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. Okay. Okay, my number eight, you saw, but I don't think we're going to have to move on because I don't think it's in your top ten at all. It's uh, Lake Bell's In a World. Uh, that is not in my, not in my top ten. Um, yeah, because you only kind of liked it, or... Uh, there were a lot of things I loved about it. I thought there were some uh, extraneous plots that, while good, didn't necessarily contribute to the film. And I thought and, uh, it was very smartly written, very funny, and uh, very well acted. Um, you know, you mentioned those extraneous plots, and I I completely agree that they're extraneous, but that doesn't bother me at all. I think one thing you were talking about is um, that you were looking at your like sort of top 15 and seeing how many of them were a pure auteurist vision. Mm-hmm. And I think... Um, I don't mind that the plot seem extraneous or the, the, you know, scenes seem extraneous to the plot because it all seems so from Lake Bell's point of view. Mm-hmm. And I feel, uh, I feel like maybe because it's in a subtle way and it's in a, in a recognizable sort of like slight sundancey, somewhat romantic in some ways, comedy type of field that maybe it's not, it's people aren't, people are treating it as if it's more familiar than it is or than mm-hmm. it felt to me because it felt like a, to me, it was a pretty big auteurist, like, this is my first feature statement film. And I'm very much looking forward to more from Lake Bell. So am I. I as I've said on the show before, I, uh, I naturally am suspicious anytime an actor or actress directs a movie. And my first thought is like, they could go on to be great. This first one is not going to be wonderful. And I'm not sure but, totally why I think that, but this was the, this do- doesn't fit into that. Because it doesn't, I think some of the things you're talking about, it doesn't. I mean, uh, it's an ensemble piece more than anything, even though mm-hmm. it's uh, even though she's the main character. But also, she's not afraid either as a writer or a director or an actor to give other people the the scene or the focus, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, even when she does, there's not a lot of uh, sturm and drang, like not a lot of uh, you know. Um, uh, over emoting you know mm-hmm. there are a couple uh see, there's um i always forget her freaking name uh who played uh her sister in the movie i do not remember her name either but she was yeah. really great i and liked her great. a lot and she has a scene that you know she's thought of as a comedic actress and i'm gonna look up her name because i always forget it um and she has a scene where she has to come home in one mood in a good mood she's had a long day she's looking forward to uh uh, Michaela Watkins is her name. Oh, yes. Michaela Watkins. She's looking forward to dinner with her husband. 
she comes home. She's talking. She immediately realizes something or sees something or hears something. I won't give away. And has to turn kind of on a dime and really, really sells it. And I think, again, to go back to the thing that you're talking about, how this isn't like the typical first movie from uh, an actor, there's no... Um, it's not in the words what she does, and it's also not. It doesn't linger. You you get this moment and you feel it, and mm-hmm. then you move on. Uh, and I think that the film does a lot of that sort of thing. I, I referred to it as an ensemble an ensemble piece, uh, and it never it never overstays its welcome in any scene for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that uh, that uh, that that sprightness. Um, helped it helped it first and foremost as a comedy uh but also helped it from uh ever feeling like it was um trying too hard if you will yeah i think uh i think if anything by by trying to incorporate by trying to give almost everybody a story um i feel like maybe it was trying too hard in that respect but here's what i think it was trying to do It was trying to make sure that if we're going to spend time with any character, like any kind of real time with a character, we deserve to know who that character is. Mm -hmm. And so, so it incorporates a story that is stories that are organic and that are believable and are good. Um, And I don't think, and that's the thing, I don't think they're necessary, but I would much rather err on the side of let's get to know characters more than not. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it's a movie that certainly I enjoyed and I really am looking forward to what she's going to do next. Uh, and it also, uh, the last thing I'll say, the premise is that it's about, um, voiceover artists for movie trailers. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and that seemed like such a specific thing that you think, oh, it's going to be a sort of, this is going to be the standard, like, uh, Hollywood insider taking, you know, taking shots at Hollywood. Yeah. And it has notes of that. But it's very much not that most of the time. It's more about, like you said, about the characters. But it does take some time. That, like, it has... Tignataro has probably the greatest line in the movie. Because we spent so much time talking and living in this world of the trailers mm-hmm. for these movies. That you completely forget that they're just commercials. And there are actual movies that we're talking about. Yeah. And so there is one part where the trailer... That they've been talking about the whole movie finally de- debuts and everyone's watching it and Tignataro says I cannot wait to see that movie it's the funniest <laughs> line in the movie and it's also such a great like wake up call it's like yeah everything they're doing is not that important but it's so important to them yeah exactly like it's there are, okay if you were to ask if you were to poll most people they'd say yeah there are probably about 10 jobs that are super important in the world (laughs) everything else is just a way to pay the bills but to the person paying the bill this job is very important and uh and yeah and and i like that it took it seriously while also occasionally letting the air out of it a little bit which is something that should always happen anytime you approach a movie about hollywood okay by the way talking about uh you mentioned um nominating people for best cameo I nominated Cameron Diaz for a very small cameo that yeah. she has in this movie that is uh, pretty awesome. Very, very short, yes. Uh, okay, my number eight is The Act of Killing. Okay, let's talk about it. Hey, all right. <laughs> so, um, and that's the thing. I feel this bad. This is one, uh, if, if this may be the first time you're listening to one of our best ofs, I have some very specific rules, 
and uh, about like copyrights and when the films originally premiered and so act of killing is a 2012 film as is spring breakers that's why they're not on my list fair enough so but, they, but you think list? they would be if if these were probably i mean i i, I hate to say you know but yeah. yeah probably okay uh yeah the act of killing is a film that i had heard so much about going going into and i was really prepared uh, i really was like all right here we go uh and the film wound up exceeding my expectations in certain respects and then subverting my expectations in others. Uh, it wound up because so many people focus on the, uh, for lack of a better term, the I'll say gimmick. Uh, but you know what I mean? The, uh, the, and I, and the, I know why to someone who hadn't seen it, it would seem like a gimmick. Right. And that, but even then I didn't think of it as a gimmick. The, the conceit I'll, I'll, I'll put it like okay. that. The, the conceit of the film, um, and for those that don't know, it's oh my. Okay, so here's the deal. You go ahead. Okay, in um, you're better at summarizing than I am. In Indonesia, in the 1960s, there were around two million people killed, uh, murdered um, in a, uh, I guess, a genocide, mostly to get rid of communists. But mm-hmm. when it, it, you know, it turned into a sort of witch hunt where you could kill anyone you didn't want around, or yeah. you could rat on your neighbor and say he's a communist and they'd kill him. Uh, and a lot of this was carried out by the government, but also there were gangsters who were essentially working with free reign, uh, carrying out these killings on behalf of the government. Yeah. Um, and because the people who carried out these killings in the sixties are still the people in power, there's never been any, uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, but any retribution or, yeah. or, or anything like that. Any consequence at all, except yeah. for fame. Yes. And that's the thing that like, these people are essentially folk heroes now. Yeah. Uh, and so what this guy, Joshua Oppenheimer, the director did is he went down and, you know, he said, I'm going to make a movie about this, this time in history. And so he, he allowed these gangsters who are folk heroes now to restage things they had done, Mm -hmm. uh, in the manner of movies that they like. So sometimes it's, so it's a Western or it's a gangster film or it's a musical, all these different things take place and they're these sort of somewhat lavish restaging i mean relatively lavish Mm -hmm. it's not a huge budget movie but uh restagings of of awful things told from the point of view of the killers being the heroes that's at least the premise it goes many more different places from than there and i really i'll say this one thing i did not expect was uh an arc Especially when it comes to documentaries, you do not expect there to be a uh, like a narrative, uh, a traditional narrative arc Mm -hmm. where one of the people that we're following has a bit of a change. And I'm not sure if I would go so far as say there is a definite change, but one of the it follows. I would say uh, it's very definite. It's that's the thing. It's a it's a change, but I don't know if he's conscious of it. Would you say that's fair? I think he is conscious of it. I think. Hmm. There are questions because he becomes the main guy. His name is Anwar Congo, I think. That's right. Yes. Um, he becomes friends with the director. And so there are scenes of him saying Joshua, you know, as he yeah. calls him. And he starts. There's a scene near the end where he after he has played the role of one of the victims, I guess. Um, he, I guess, starts thinking about things he didn't think about for 40 yeah. years, 50 years or whatever. Um I guess for you, yeah. Uh, for one thing, that uh, Joshua Joshua Oppenheimer filmed for a long time. Mm-hmm. There's a that, that's years and years of footage. Um, but he he asks Joshua some questions of like, what do you think about this? And I think that's 
I think that's enough evidence that he was he was uh he was consciously changed. But then there are some subconscious things too. There's you know I mean the the last scene of the film juxtaposed with the first scene of the film which takes place yeah. in the same place. Yeah. Uh in the first scene of the film this I'll go ahead and say they're in a sort of concrete courtyard I guess you'd call it. Yeah. Which is a place where they kept these people and carried out a lot of their killings. Yeah. Um and so he's showing Joshua around this area where he, where he killed literally this guy alone is responsible for hundreds, maybe a thousand yeah. deaths, maybe more. Um, and he would just kill people with, by, you know, essentially garroting them with, uh, yeah. with, with a uh, metal sort of wire. And so he's showing Joshua around this courtyard and talking about how oh, it was two inches thick with blood at some times on the floor here. And then he's saying, after we'd spend the day doing this, we'd have a lot of tension to work off. So we'd go out dancing and he starts dancing. Yeah. He's literally like dancing on the graves, <laughs> of the people he killed yeah. in the first scene. And then, this I won't spoil, but the last scene in the movie also takes place in the same courtyard, and it's very, very different. Yeah, it's a very different tone. It's one of those things that it's such a clear juxtaposition that you're like, did someone write this? You cannot write this <laughs> right, better yeah. than, than how this turned out. Uh, and it is one of those things where, you know, you watch the film and... And there is a lot of pretty open corruption, uh, even you know, even now in 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 uh, Indonesia as we as we see. Um, yeah, they, they go to, like to the, the point where it's quite funny. At yeah, times. they go to the market, and he's literally like the one guy, not Congo, but one of the other guys, is literally like extorting money from the yeah like, people working the stands at the market yeah. right in front of us yeah. on camera. And then I believe is it that same guy that's running for office, or is it a different guy? Um, I think it's a different guy. Yeah. It's the other big guy. The other big guy. There's two I, big I, guys. Yeah, I'm sorry to put it that way, but that's kind of, um, all big people it, look, the, look alike to me, David. You know, there's another bit that you couldn't have written, and I talked about it, I talked about this recently on the show, I can't remember what the context was, we were talking about the Native Americans and the genocide of the Native Americans right. uh, here in this country and how, similarly, we've never, uh, you, you know, there's never been any retribution for that. Um reckoning maybe is the word i'm looking for. that's a good one yeah there's yeah. never been any, anything like that and there's a part in the act of killing where the main big guy of the two big guys yeah who's like anwar congo's like sort of right hand big guy i started referring to him as dan doherty he kind of reminded me of dan <laughs> from deadwood from deadwood yeah um there's a part where they're watching tv and he's wearing a shirt and you wonder how did he get this shirt it must have been i don't know if it's like a from a thrift store or something but it's like a pioneer days shirt from some small town in america that has like a caricature of a Native American on it. Yeah, and it's like again, did the director give him this yeah, shirt? Like, because it's, it's so clearly like forcing us to think about the correlation to our country. Yeah, that it seems like you couldn't have. Like, if it came out uh -huh. in a few years that he really manipulated the events <laughs> of his film, I I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah. It's, um, I might be a little disappointed, but I wouldn't be surprised. Um, and that's the thing is it does, you do watch this and you laugh and you shake your head, but then you, and think like, oh man, what a, <laughs> what a terrible country. And, but then eventually you do think, well, wait a second. Uh -huh. It's like our country does not have the best history. <laughs> right. And while I will say that for the most part, we, we tend not to think of like, who do we think of? Like what, what like soldiers that killed native americans do we think of custer right who's who, not a hero. Who, who's not a hero he got what, what was coming to him is basically the way we all approach him 
Um, so I do think of it. It's like, okay, well there's that, but I, I also thought it's like, well, maybe that's because we have some, a little bit of time on it. Like the events that these guys are talking about was only 40, 50 years ago, yeah. you know? And so if we were to go back to, you know, the 1890s or something like that, or the, or the 19 or early right. 1900s, would we have thought of it like that? Would we have thought of, you know, would, would we have thought of Custer as like, oh, poor Custer? <laughs> yeah. Apparently not. Apparently even then people are like, oh, that bastard. But, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. And so it does, it does cause you to think that just because we are in, you know, a major industrialized country and, you know, world leader in a number of things, um, you know, it, it, it gives you pause to think about, well, where did we, where did we come from? And anytime you think, where do we come from? It does cause you to think, where are we going? Um, do we do this now? Certainly, you know, probably not in so overt a way, but is there a way in which we still, um, idolize people that have done this in our, maybe our, our recent past or something like that. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it's a film that really just makes you, that really makes you think, but also it is so from a narrative standpoint, it is so compelling, you know, I mean, I'm prepared to give Anwar Congo best actor, except he wasn't acting, you know? And so it's, it's a film that definitely, I will say this, it, it was hard to watch on principle, but in execution, no pun intended, I didn't find it that remarkably hard to watch. Can I tell you? Yeah, you're right. I mean, I was definitely shaken by the end of it. I This is when I also saw it at the Los Angeles Film Festival. And unlike you, here's what I knew about it. Okay. I knew that um, Errol Morris and Vernon Herzog had seen it and were producers on it because they wanted more people. As a way to get it out to more people, they right. signed on as producers and helped promote the film. That's what I knew. I sat down in the theater, and while I was waiting for the movie to start, looked at the program and saw what the movie was about. Oh, so boy. I had about five minutes of prep. Man, before. yeah, but don't you regret looking at that program? <laughs> yeah, oh, that would have been something <laughs> if I didn't even do that. All right, um, we do need to move on. Yeah. So uh, what's your number seven? Uh, my number seven is Spike Jones's Her. Okay, we'll, uh, we'll just keep going. Okay, what's your number six, or your number seven? My number seven is Noah Baumbach's Francis Ha. I didn't see it. All right. Man, oh man. Hey, David, do you remember what it was like to be in your mid-twenties? <laughs> Vaguely. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you. I did, <laughs> did not care for it. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's a fascinating film. I haven't seen a whole lot of Noah Baumbach. I've seen The Squid and the Whale and this. And then I saw um, The Life Aquatic, which he co-wrote. Um, but I responded so well to this movie because as people who in some way, shape or form have artistic ambitions, um, not that I necessarily think that what we do is inherently artistic, um, but something related to art, uh, like it can be a very, it can be a very cold world out there. Um, especially when you're, you're trying to do this thing, but you're also, you're in your twenties you're out of college. You can't really be living with your parents anymore, although plenty of people do, but like you can't really do that anymore. So, you, and you have to be in a place that's probably pretty expensive because that's where the jobs are theoretically. Uh-huh. Um, and just the frustration of how do you deal with so frustrating a circumstance, a life circumstance. And I'm sure we've all been there and I'm, you know, some of us are, are still there, you know, I mean, 
listeners, I'm sure you'll be surprised to find that uh, Battleship Pretension does not pay our bills. Yeah. So um, we tried with that premium episode, but apparently nobody's interested in it. No, that's, yeah. We can move on. Anyway. Um, no one could part with a dollar. 29. $1.29. You know what? And the fact that you just said a dollar, maybe... Maybe that's the issue. Maybe I should lower the price. Um, I thought you were saying it was twenty nine dollars. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you you signed off on that, didn't you? Um, but uh, I'd be fascinated to know what what would an episode have to be for people to pay twenty nine dollars for it. <laughs> I'm curious. Yeah, we'd have to reveal our deepest darkest secrets. We'd have to. We have to have a guest. <laughs> yeah. No one paid $20 for just yeah. us. Yeah. A guest that, I don't know, maybe died a few years ago and we've brought them back. Right. And we have the exclusive. Yeah. Or maybe some sort of like animal, live, live animal sacrifice. Maybe? That sounds good. But then yeah. it has to be a video podcast because yeah. we could just be doing some great sound effects. Yeah. Okay. Moving so, on. So Francis Ha. Yeah. And so, uh, but we we've seen movies uh, sort of like this about the, like the frustration of of being in your twenties. What we haven't seen is a character like Francis, uh, who remains so upbeat uh, despite her circumstances. She's really trying to make it happen, uh, but she knows she knows how she comes across. She recognizes that. She to 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 some would come across like a teenager um, with her energy level and her, uh, idealistic ambitions. Um, but nonetheless, she keeps this attitude. She keeps working. And though she, and she moves from one apartment to another cause she never really finds one place that works well for her. Uh, but more specifically, um, it is about a relationship that she has with her best friend. Um, and they were, they're roommates that, and, but then her best friend has a boyfriend and is getting more and more involved in that relationship. And it draws her away from Francis and to the point of really kind of separating herself from her, not consciously. It's not something she wants to do. It's just something that happens as anybody, you know, as like you have a fiance, I have a wife, like, you know, I have best friends, but in the end, my wife takes priority over them, you know? And so, uh, so that is what is happening with, with Francis' best friend. And so she's left kind of like, and clearly this friend was kind of an anchor for her. And now without her, she has to figure out what else is going on and realizes she doesn't have a whole lot of other anchors. She doesn't really have any friends to speak of. She doesn't have any relationships. She doesn't really have much of a job, uh, and the thing that she's striving for isn't happening, or at least not the way she wants to. And then she comes face to face in many, in several different scenes with like one could say the legit world, which is like people with jobs and kids who are actually making money and doing well. Um, the other day, uh, Jen and I were talking with a, a couple, uh, the one of which is a like a recreational therapist, not recreational, pardon me, um, occupational, pardon me, okay. occupational therapist. And the other is, is in, I mean, you in, thought you were saying she was the therapist, like in her free time for fun. <laughs> <laughs> That's how much money she has on hand. Um, but, uh, and then, and then the other one is, uh, is like in finance 
and just just the way they talk about money and that's the thing they're not they're not callous about it but it's clear like all right they're gonna make it they're doing okay (laughs) as it turns out they're not hitching their wagon to a podcast or two (laughs) um hoping desperately that the podcast awards come with a a money prize um we'll never win a podcast award i i might yes I probably never will, though. We never will because we can't mention them without talking shit about them. Like right now, <laughs> that is, I, I, that I is true. Where I can't say I can't mention the podcast words words without talking about how stupid they are. <laughs> They're not stupid. They're just Meaningless. largely irrelevant. <laughs> so, um, but that's the thing. So you'll notice, even in talking about it, I've brought this back. Yes, to myself, but as somebody who. I mean, I'm married and I have a house. In many ways, I feel like I'm doing pretty, pretty well. But I mean, this is a film that resonated deeply with me as somebody who has certain ambitions, as somebody who is trying to maintain a certain type of attitude, even though, you know, I'm about to turn by the, I'm two days away by the time this uh, airs, I'm two days away from turning 32. And that's weird. I'm firmly in my thirties at this point. And it's weird to think about and realize that in some ways I'm doing better than I thought I would in other ways, still not. And, uh, and so even though the Francis is in her, in her late twenties, she's in that turning point where there's a lot of assessment of her life and it all feels very real and very relatable. And, but it, it's never depressing because her attitude, she is such a unique character and she's so much fun. And at times she's obnoxious at times she's annoying, but for the most part, she's fun and fun to be around. And it's just a movie that I really, really enjoyed. Just, I really want to see it now. Cause just you talking about it, maybe think about a bunch of things like where I am now in my life. If I saw it from the age of 25, I'd actually be really happy with it. But being in here now, I have all sorts of things in which I feel like I'm falling short. Oh, yeah. That I wish I could do more. And then also, do you feel, you've talked before about like sometimes feeling like you're a fraud or that sometimes feeling like everyone else is doing something different than you are. Yep. Do you feel like, I, I often feel like I don't have enough friends. I feel like other people have a whole bunch of friends and I have a whole bunch of people that I know and get along with and then like three people I would actually consider friends. Maybe, I, little, maybe, maybe four or five people that I would actually consider that I would actually like be comfortable, like listening to their problems or calling them when I was upset. Ah, that's like four or five people. Okay. Okay. See now, thank you for specifying there at the end. Uh, I have what I would consider to be a lot of friends. There are maybe three people in the world I trust. Oh yeah. That's um, very difficult. So, th- so yes, I, I do know what you mean uh, okay. to a certain extent. But yeah. So Francis, uh, I think you would enjoy it. It is available on Netflix watch instant. So check it out. Okay. Um, my number six, is that where we are? Yes. Yep. Is Paul, Paul Greengrass's Captain Phillips. Will we be talking about that later? In a moment. Yeah. Okay. What's your number six? My number six is the place beyond the pines. Oh, that's also by a 2012 movie by my uh, oh, okay. stupid, like, strict rubric but let's talk about it because i loved it can't you just drop that you keep calling it stupid can't you just drop it i, I call it stupid to um to appease the listeners but you love yes, it but i i need it i don't okay. know if i love it i need it okay because i'm a person who is um you can ask my therapist i am extremely uh devastated the detrimentally rigid oh okay and so i tend to see things between 
uh, my, my therapist says, hey, why are you so hard on yourself about all the stuff that you think you need to do all the time that you're not actually, you don't actually need to do? Mm-hmm. And it's because I don't see, I can't see a middle ground between beating myself up all the time and just letting everything go to seed. I have no, if I'm not constantly on my own case, then I, I fear that I will just lay on the couch and get fired and lose my girlfriend and lose everything. So here's the thing. You and I need to have a conversation <laughs> after we're done recording because um, you're speaking my language. So here's the thing. To me, in my mind, if I don't have these strict rules about what constitutes a 2013 movie, then how do I not like if I saw, you know, uh, Hocus Pocus <laughs> from 1993 or whatever for the first time this year. How do I not call that a 2013 movie? Because I saw it the first time. I can't see did the it. Middle did group. it get a wide release <laughs> this last year? No. There you go. Okay. You're I, welcome. What 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 constitutes a wide release? Well, I'll tell you. I'm I'm right there with you to for the most part because like I just watched Cheap Thrills. Mm-hmm. Well, Cheap Thrills like. Plenty of people saw it last year, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but it's getting an official release in 2014, but it could not, in many ways, it could not be more of a 2013 movie. I'm counting it as 2014 because first off, I already had my top 10 made <laughs> and I was just like, all right, I'm, I'm ready to move on mentally. But no, I, I absolutely understand like it, especially these days when it's like, there's tons of film festivals, there's video on demand. You and I see screenings months in advance. I saw the unknown known apparently like three or four months before it was going to come out. Like it's easy to get for the, what the waters to be a little, a little muddied. So I I understand. Okay. So place beyond the pines. Can you, can you refresh my memory on how to say that director's last name? (laughs) I can't remember his name. Something like CN, CN France or something like that. I don't know how to say Derek, Derek CN France. CN France. Yeah. As I like to say. Because um, he's clearly French. Let's start with the very first thing about All right. that I want to say. This is just a stupid thing. little thing that I want to say about Place Beyond the Pines. If Drive could make that dumb satin bomber jacket popular, how come Place Beyond the Pines didn't make a Metallica Ride the Lightning t-shirt with, <laughs> with the sleeves cut off more popular? <laughs> that is not the first thing I thought you were going to talk about. Um no, what was the first thing you thought I was going to talk about? Well, there's anytime you and I have talked about the film, you often cite a certain character and say, okay, "Yeah, say you don't know if you hate that character." If I, I don't know if I hate the performance, you hate, you, or if, if you, he's so good yeah, that I hate the character. That's what it was. And I'm coming around on the latter. I think I need to deal with my own prejudices. That there's a character who doesn't show up into. The, uh, I don't know if it's a. I, I, I don't know, again, this is a 2012 film by my standards. So I don't, I don't, I feel weird being weird about spoilers, but I don't know. Um, but the movie takes place over a long period of time. Yeah. And it's a so, fairly unconventional structure, I would yes. say. And so there are some characters that don't show up until two thirds of the way through the movie, but that's because it's a long movie. They still have plenty of screen time. Yeah. One of those characters, I think I need to deal with the fact that he reminded me so much of kids that I hated in high school that I in the moment felt like I didn't like his performance, but I've come to realize that it's like, I just hated him so much. And that meant that the kid was great. No. Yeah. He's a great actor. Yeah. He was great at making me detest him. Yeah. In every way. And he's, yeah. Even though like, I feel like the film doesn't necessarily condemn him. I think the film understands that 
he behaves very poorly and he's and he's certainly a jerk but he's not irredeemable especially if you look at the situation in which he grew up yeah uh there's so much to say about this film i feel like this is a film that people are going to discover in the future as a film you know every every once in a while you and i talk about movies that uh in which we talk about i feel like the director didn't quite know what he was doing mm-hmm. not that he not it's like ah he doesn't know what he's doing but like he doesn't know what he has but he know he's got he, he knows he's got something and he has to do something with it yeah i talk about apocalypse now uh there'll be blood there'll be blood vertigo i tend to talk about yeah. but like and I feel like Place Beyond the Pines is that. I feel like that's he's trying good, to... That's good company to put it in. Oh, absolutely. I feel like the director is tackling so much that I have a hard time talking about it and pinpointing what I like about it. Sure, I can talk about... I think I really like the way it's written. I really like the performances. I love the way it's shot. I think it's beautiful. Yeah, I like the is. way I like the way it's put together. For, like, I can talk about all those. I'm not... I'm barely skimming the surface. Like, it is so ambitious while also being so specific to these characters that, I mean, it's a film about, I mean, people say, ah, it's a film about fathers and sons. Like, yeah, somehow that, I know that's a big thing. Somehow that seems too small. Yeah. It's just this, I don't know, just like, I don't like a, like, like unforgiveness in people's lives and just the, the, the way our, our actions like echo even through the generations. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the idea of, you know, it's a, it's a very cloud Atlas type of, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> view of things that I, yeah, that I respond to. And just that because yeah, between the beginning of the film, and the end of the film, it says 15 years have passed. It feels like more to me. Um, but yeah, anyway, but it's, it's, uh, Anyway, 15 years have passed and, and we're still feeling the repercussions of what happened at the beginning. Yeah. And it's, yeah. And so I, I don't really, I don't have much more to say except, you know, it, I'm not sure if I'd say it's a perfect film. I think it's better than perfect. Strange as that may sound. Perfect films tend to be, I find, I tend to find them a little cold. Uh, this film is, is you know, more than movie, that. There's a movie that I've always said is, um, a perfect film and it never ends up in my top 10 or, you know, never ends up my list of favorite films of all time. And that's Ryan Johnson's brick. Mm-hmm. I do think that is as conceived a perfectly executed film. Yeah. And there's a lot to be said for that, but there's a reason that brick isn't one of my favorite movies of all time. Whereas place beyond the pines, which is, um, messy and imperfect in yeah. a lot of ways, uh, is, would rank much higher on the list. I compare it to, you mentioned there will be blood. All right. No Country No Country for Old Men is a wonderful movie that I respond to a great deal. I view it as a perfect film. I see. There Will Be Blood is not a perfect film, but I view it as somehow more vital. There's a reason that when you and I, you know, at this point a couple of years ago, talked about the best movies of the 20 aughts, mm-hmm. I put There Will Be Blood at number one because it's messy but it's the kind of messy that we are all living every day. And when we look back over our lives, we'll see the kind of messiness that you find in there will be blood and that you certainly find mm-hmm. in the place beyond the pines. Cause we're all just constantly living with regrets, not only our own, but sometimes our family regrets and sometimes cultural regrets and trying to, trying to correct them, not merely despairing over them. And it's just, Oh, um, I think in a year when we saw so many movies, uh, pain and gain, 
uh, Wolf of Wall Street, Spring Breakers, The Bling Ring. There are others about <clears throat> about class and aspiration. I find it refreshing that Place Beyond the Pines is a movie that deals with people of very different classes, mm-hmm. but is egalitarian in the way that it deals with them. Oh, yeah. It, you know, um, Ryan Gosling's sort of motorbike and trailer that he lives in are photographed and presented in the same way as Bradley Cooper's father's pool. Yeah. You know, um, and uh, it's it's somewhere in between. You mentioned how beautiful the film looks, and it's not beautiful in the way that, say, Stoker was beautiful, where it's really in your face. Mm-hmm. It's... Um, there's there's a there's a beautifully soft realism like bordering on dreariness but never quite getting there to the way that the film looks it feels like and i it, this is i might be incorporating my thoughts about the film into how i'm describing the way it looks it feels like a memory it feels mm-hmm. like things that when you you know when you think back on a place you may have very specific details like you may remember it pretty accurately but that is also filtered through what you know and associate with the place so it's still accurate but it's even but it's beyond accurate because it's also accurate to not merely how it looked but how you feel about it and i feel like it's shot as though it were a memory like the things that are beautiful are particularly beautiful the things that are dreary are particularly dreary they're like it's not shot it's not like uh, cinema verite or anything like mm-hmm. that. Like there's definitely a style to it, but the style is realistic, but uh, maybe even impressionistic now that I think about it. Yeah. Maybe like there's a, there's a gauziness to it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's a, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Um, we do need to move on, but yeah. Okay. Uh, I had more to, Sorry, I, I, well, I'm done. You can, you can the keep last going. Thing I want to say, um, is that, so I want to, this is, I might be the first person to ever do this. I want to compare the place beyond the pines to in a world. Okay. <laughs> in that, uh, you mentioned that it, that in, in a world, um, doesn't give short shrift to any of its characters, no matter right. how small. Um, think about, uh, Ray Liotta in place beyond the pines. It's yeah. not a character that needs to be fleshed out. Yeah. And yet he is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that happens. Um, I'm drawing a blank on who played Bradley Cooper's dad as an actor that I love. Yeah, I was uh, thinking about it too, and I it's it's like his name is like Harrison. Oh, Harris Eulen. Harris Eulen. Yeah, yeah. Yes, that's his name. That's right. I'm a big fan of that guy, despite the fact that obviously I can't remember his name. Um, yeah, and then specifically, I like all the acting, but I really, really liked Ben Mendelsohn in it. Um, He's great in everything. He is great in everything, but just and there's a character that could have been two dimensional because I mean he. He serves primarily a plot function, but he feels completely real and lived in. I believe that he existed before the movie started and he's going to continue to exist before the movie, you know, after the movie's yeah. over. And it's just, uh, I don't know. It's just a wonderful film. And I, I think there are a lot of people that are, that talk about how it is imperfect and I understand why. Um, but I would say in this case, don't go by how perfect it is. Go by how much it sticks with you. Cause it will. Yeah. Okay. Uh, my number five, I don't think you've seen. Um, it's, uh, I don't know how to say the director's name. Elaine Juradi, I think is his name. Okay. Uh, the film is called Stranger by the Lake. Did not see it. Um, it is a French film that is, uh, you know, we mentioned Hitchcock when we talked about Stoker. This is also a very Hitchcockian film, despite the fact that Hitchcock never featured, you know, 
hardcore unsimulated gay sex in his films or or hardcore unsimulated straight sex either. He never yeah. did either one of those things. I don't know why. Admittedly, I qualify it. admittedly, I never saw Frenzy. <laughs> That's true. I haven't seen it either. Well, uh, oh, we're forgetting about a family plot. Oh, indeed. Yes. It's yeah. a rough one. Triple uh, X. All right. Um, <laughs> but Stranger by the Lake is a story that takes place over the course of, I want to say it's exactly 10 days. And it takes place at the same location and it's sort of environs every day, which is this secluded beach that is um, in, uh, I guess, a small or mid-sized uh, French town uh, on a lake and is a, a cruising spot for gay men. Mm-hmm. And we have one main character who just shows up there every day. He's just sort of like he's in between jobs. He's got some time off. He shows up every day and he swims and he flirts and then they go you know sometimes men go into the woods and uh have sex and um he becomes sort of intrigued with one of these men um and after hanging around one night and sort of spying on the man after all the ever other men have left and it's just this man that he has a crush on and the guy he's with out swimming and he sees his crush murder someone Hmm. and then basically decides not to do anything about it and keep pursuing the guy um romantically slash sexually that's basically the entirety of the plot but that sounds great (laughs) but what there basically you've got the beach Mm -hmm. the woods and the little parking area and the entire movie only takes place in those three locations and it's it's such it's so closed off that it becomes like a, a sort of dream state where you're just all like you start to forget that these even when they make references to going out to dinner afterwards or whatever you start to forget that they have lives and apartments or anything outside of this area mm-hmm. um and, and i i think that the director who's i'm not going to attempt his name again uh creates such such a fully realized and enclosed hermetic almost uh location for his film that it's it's uh it's almost like uh i'm getting getting a shaky territory here because i don't know video games that well but it's like a video game level that has all sorts of areas that you don't need for the video game but you could go into anyway okay you know but it's still like finite but it's rich at the same time. Okay. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, kind of, yes. Like you, you feel full, feel you feel fully immersed in this place. Mm-hmm. Um, and but it's also uh, very as fully realized as it is. It's also very fragile because uh, the film never says what year it takes place, and is I think intentionally misleading at times about that because a lot of the fashion makes you think oh this is the 80s um and then some of the cars even make you think okay this is taking place in the 80s but then there are all there are also a couple cars in the parking lot that are clearly more recent than that Hmm. but no one has a cell phone there's that it's not even talked about or anything there's no cell phones at all it's uh it's a it's a bizarre timeless place and i think there's a very specific reason that he made the film about gay men in that uh it looks at the idea that in a in a in a sub community if you will mm-hmm. that's cloistered like that 
the the heat is sort of turned up, if you will. If I can say if you will twice in one sentence. Um, uh, and uh, everything, it's almost like being on vacation all the time. You know how Lost in Translation got that sort of feeling of like you're away from normality and so things are heightened. Yeah. And so because it's at this cruising spot and everyone is sort of a fugitive or a secret from the re- re- regular society, everything's a bit more turned up mm-hmm. because of it. And that means that people maybe fall in love a little bit faster, but it also means the danger is greater. And there's a really, really strong sense of danger in the movie. There's, um, I mean, it gets to the point, obviously there's the murder and there are other, there are other brief scenes of real violence in the movie. But even in between that, a lot of the men are just naked all the time. And so they're walking uh, and sitting in their bare feet and bare asses on hard, sharp rocks a lot of the time. And it's almost like a metaphor for the danger that they put themselves in. Um, because essentially they're in a place as, as a marginalized or judged sub society. They're in a place where they don't necessarily have, uh, someone to run to. Uh, or or, or yeah, okay, the authorities, yes. like, you know, it's sort of, you know, you hear uh, this about black communities all the time, that they don't call the police because the police are just as likely to arrest the person who called the police yeah. as the perpetrator. And it's the same sort of feeling here, that when the detective comes to investigate, eventually they find the body of the person who was murdered, that he's as much of an outsider to, he's as much, he causes as much caution in the person who did it as he does in everyone else yeah. because he's an outsider. And so it's a self-policing group that doesn't do a very good job of self-policing. And everyone is both seeking a sense of community and safety, but also putting them at ri- themselves at risk just right. by entering into this, uh, this agreement. Anyway, I went on too long about it. It's really Man, fascinating. If film. I saw that rock thing, cause that's dangerous <laughs> for the actors too. I know it sounds weird, but, uh, it's the first thing I think of whenever I hear that someone's like doing their own stunts, right? Yeah. Like it actually takes me out of the movie instead of uh, puts me into it. Um, yeah, no, that sounds really great. It sounds like, a. It, like it just sounds like such a neat, and so specific of an idea, like somehow if it were like a, like a mixed couples resort or something mm-hmm. like that, that's not the same. Yeah. Like it needs to be this thing, especially because, well, it's a, it's a very obvious like visual representation of we are cut off from the world already, but now we're very specifically cut off. And what are we going to do right. when this happens? And the, and frankly, the idea of if we were to seek out an outside source for help, then this might confirm in their mind Mm-hmm. what they already think about our community. Not that every, not that anybody thinks that gay men are murdering each other all the right. time, but it still, it could put our little like Oasis at risk. Yes. Even though it already is at risk. Obviously yeah. it's sort of like the beach. Yes. <laughs> the <same way. laughs> yeah. Which is a movie I enjoy quite a bit. Me too. Did you read that book? I did not. Pretty good. Um, okay. So what, what number was that? That was my number five. So what's your number five? My number five is Rodney Asher's room 237. Okay. Also a 2012 film for me. Yeah, I know. Uh, here's something I've noticed over the last few years. A couple years ago, one of my top 10 was Entrance. Last year, one of my favorite movies was Compliance, and now I got Room 237. I want to make it clear, just in case anybody's wondering. <laughs> uh, 
I don't like these movies because I know the people that are involved in them. I didn't even know uh, that. Yeah. Chances are, I know the people that are involved in them because they make movies I like. Yeah. Um, and Room 237 is such a... To be clear, like, this isn't me being, like, weird like, with my little rules. Room 237 played Sundance two years ago in 2012 oh i know it's okay. it's yeah something we'd been hearing about for a long time and then it was like iffy about whether it was going to get any distribution at all and then when it did it was in 2013 um so it's uh so it counts for me okay but i can i can see what you're talking about um but yeah uh i do tend to like movies about art especially if it if they are about art the way i like art which is Rather than just say, hey, here's what this movie's about. Uh-huh. Or it's, here's what this movie's about for me. What about you? Different, eh? Okay, let's keep going. It's sort of like how you and I, when we do our sort of regular episodes where we pose a topic or a question, it's the Battleship Retention way to never actually come up with an answer to the question. Because there is no answer yeah, most of the time. Yeah, would be boring and we'd be wrong if we did come up with an answer. I think so. Yeah, that's... I completely agree. It's the it's the same sort of thing. If you're if you're watching them to thirty seven to figure out The Shining, you're going to be disappointed because it's yeah. going to, all it's going to do is ask more questions. And who? Okay, I say who would want that, but apparently a lot of people wanted that. Um, I stupidly weighed in on an IMDb conversation, and I shouldn't have, but man, I just couldn't help it. Um, and so, uh, but yeah, who like. Who would want that? Who would want someone to say, all right, you know, this movie that has haunted you for decades and you're, and you're never quite sure what it was about. It's about this. Here's all the answers. Case closed. You can now move on with your life and never watch it again. Like it just, it it just, I'm not interested in that. And this is a film that not only acknowledges that, but celebrates it. Like there is no judgment in the, even, even when I feel judgmental towards some of these theories, I'm like, it's clearly not a minotaur. Like Uh even when I act like that, the film doesn't because that's the thing. The film is also inviting my opinion as a viewer, inviting my opinion into it so that I can look at other people's opinions and they, and incidentally, it's acknowledging these people would listen to any, any theory I have about the shining and say, that's ridiculous. Uh You know, and I like it. I, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like there are times when I think somebody likes a movie and I think the movie's terrible and I think they are wrong for thinking it is good. <laughs> I, that's fine. But that's, that's about quality when it comes to about, when it comes to interpretation and what a movie means to some, what a movie or any work of art means to somebody specifically, you have no idea as we get further down my top 10, You'll hear me get more and more personal, uh-huh. all right? Because you don't know what somebody else has been through. The events of their life might be just the perfect little uh, uh, recipe for them to take this movie in a way that no one else could. And I just love that Rodney, he he takes that rather swirling, intangible approach and actually makes a film that mirrors that as well, because it's not just a talking head movie with different people talking about their, their opinions. You don't talk. Yeah. You never see anybody, but you hear them. And then, and by adapting his film to each theory and, and clearly, you know, some of the stuff he does requires a great deal of effort from a filmmaking standpoint. And by putting the, an equal amount of effort into exploring every theory he's he legitimizes every theory or at least legitimizes the idea that everyone can have a theory and everyone deserves a theory 
and that it's that that's a great thing. That's a wonderful thing. And that's what art is. That's what's so wonderful about art. It's a film that, yes, it's about The Shining. And yes, it's about theory, theories that are admittedly outlandish, but it is about so much more. It's it's a celebration of art and how it belongs to all of us, something you and I regularly say. Yes. Stanley Kubrick could weigh in and say, that's not what The Shining is about. It's like, I don't care. Yeah. I don't not, care. Vince. Not call anymore. Yeah. I don't care, Vince Gilligan, that uh, you think the final episode of Breaking Bad is not a dream. It doesn't matter to you. You have just as much say as Norm MacDonald does now. Yeah. So, uh, and... Room 237, it's just, it's a film that I felt invigorated by when I, when I finished it. Okay. Um, my number four was already on your list, so I know we're talking about it. It's Martin Scorsese's The Wolf of Wall Street. All right. Uh, it was my number one for a little while uh, earlier in the Sounds year. to me like you saw three movies you liked more. Yeah, I saw three movies I liked more. Okay. Um, and I feel like we've already talked about this so much. Uh, yeah, we don't have to delve into it too much. Okay, good. Um, but... Uh, like I said a couple weeks ago, or no, I said this on the BPs thing, I think. Um, it's one of the most surprising movies of the year because I didn't expect um, a sort of, uh, I didn't expect as much of a comedy mm-hmm. as, it, as it is. And as much as it has heavier parts and, you know, distressing parts and, yeah. and uh, you know, um, at least one woman getting punched in the stomach, which is very upsetting. At least one. At least one. <laughs> um, it's you don't a, know what was cut out. Yeah. <laughs> it's a comedy most of the time yeah uh and a very effective one and a very fearless one as well yeah uh and um unlike other movies that are in my top 10 that like swept me up from the beginning um i spent about half the movie being on the fence about this movie because uh i was like i was thinking this is this is henry hill's speeches from the beginning of Goodfellas without any of the depth of who Henry Hill is. Yeah. And then it occurred to me about halfway through that this is, oh, Jordan Belfort is a guy who wants to live his life like the life that Henry Hill has at the beginning of Goodfellas Mm -hmm. all the time. There is nothing more to him. And that's really fascinating. And the fact that Martin Scorsese made a three-hour movie about a person as shallow as that yeah uh, is is impressive that he made me like it for three hours yeah it's it's a film that when i first watched it one of the things that got me was that it doesn't give the character a lot of motivation early on uh in which like especially when we're allowed to see his father it's like okay so what environment must he have been raised in to make him into this and it bothered me that the film didn't incorporate that and i but as time went on i thought well maybe the reason it's not doing that is because and i don't usually like this Uh in fact i usually specifically don't like it um but it's this idea of well it's like when somebody's behaving like this does it really matter where they came from (laughs) like look at the like where they came from that doesn't matter anymore who they are right now and how they are affecting the world and the people around them. That is what we are paying attention to. And, uh, you I mean, you mentioned his father, um, but really Jordan Belfort, as he becomes in the movie was born in the scene with Matthew McConaughey. Oh yeah. That's his, that's his origin story. Yeah. That lunch is, 
everything you need to know about what's going to happen for the that that takes place about what 25 minutes in the movie or so oh less than that i'm sure um yeah that takes that lets you know what you're going to see for the next two plus hours and i do find myself wondering um you know it's and that's the thing so i'm torn do i like that the film is not allowing the character to explain himself by 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 which i mean it's not giving us an origin it's just saying there you go fuck you you know but that that's that's who he is that's how he would explain exactly and so i so i like that but then i also tend to like the idea of like yes but everybody has a story and how else can i how can i know not how do i best know not to be this if i don't know the early stuff you know, I might be on the, I might be on the road right now to being Jordan Belfort, and I don't know. Probably not. But um, but what I think is really uh, gutsy, maybe, and in cynical about the movie is not that it's a cautionary tale tale at all. It's a it. it uh, this is a cliche, but it holds up a mirror in a way, in the way that it's it's the complete opposite of cautionary tale. It's saying you would love to be this guy, but you can't cause you don't have what he has. Yeah. You don't have whatever. Or, or, you, or you have, you, yeah. you have a number of things he does not have. That's I think a better way of saying, <laughs> yeah. you know, that, uh, the end of the movie, we'll talk a little bit about the end. Uh, um, him giving the speech at the sort of, uh, what do you call them? He's like a motivational speaker. Or yeah. Seminar type guy. And we we see, you know, up until there's that shot and there's a shot of Kyle Chandler on the subway. Yeah. Um, and between Jordan Belfort stepping off the bus at the beginning at the age of 22 mm-hmm. and the shot of Kyle Chandler on the subway two and a half hours later, we haven't seen reality. We haven't seen the place, the part of the world where most of us live yeah. at all. We've just seen this upper echelon. We've lived in it for two and a half hours. And then at the end, when we see college Chandler on the subway and we see the attendees at the seminar, we're forced to look at ourselves and say, oh, that's the world we live in. That's yeah. us. Um, this dream world that he lives in, we'll never achieve it because we have too many scruples. And that's good, but that's a cold comfort because we'll we'll never have all the luxuries he has because we're not ruthless enough. Yeah, the the cold comfort thing is something that struck me especially with that uh with that Kyle Chandler scene because he has a little smile on his face and the smile is that he's gotten he got him. Yeah. You know, this rampant uh I, I don't know just not merely consumerism but whatever you'd want to call it, just excess and and illegal behavior like he got him and it's done but in the end he still has to go back to being him the guy who's on the bus uh, on the on the train and it's this and in that moment it lingers on his face and it's fascinating that i that you and i mean just by lingering on his face Mm -hmm. and being where we are which is very different from where we like you said where we have been for the last two and a half hours um that we got it. You and I both got that sense of, oh, yeah, I got him. Yeah. And I guess I'm a more decent person. And I feel like that's yeah. that's when the movie points oh. points a finger at us. And it says, yeah, but you still want it, don't you? Yeah. Like how... Basically, un- all of your decency 
and a dollar twenty five will get you around in the subway. Yeah. <laughs> That's what it's saying. Yeah, and it's just, <laughs> and it's that idea of, it's like we just spent two and a half hours showing you the effect that this life has. It doesn't have it on everybody, obviously, but the, the effect this life can have on somebody. And yet you still want it, don't you? It's like you didn't like it, but I'm sure you think if you got it, uh-huh. you'd do it better, right. <laughs> you know, and and it might be true, but it's just yeah. like, I don't know. It's, it, it really is. There's a, there's enough, there's, there's finger pointing for everybody in that one. All right. We said we weren't going to linger too long. What's your number four? My number four is Captain Phillips. Okay, good. Um, I, this was my, what was it? My number six. Yeah. Uh, so pretty close to one another. Um, why don't you go first? Yeah. Uh, this was my number one for a while, actually. Mine too. Um, because I just, and, and I feel like we've talked about it a fair amount, so we don't have to linger on it too long, but it's just, I like the way Paul Greengrass makes movies. Um, there's a vitality to it. There's a very, uh, are you there quality to it, um, that I think lends itself more to I think truth. it's more of a, you are there type of quality. What did I say? You said, are you there? Oh, did I say that? Which oh, I'm sorry. More existential. Yeah. Yeah. Or, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. I meant you were there. I apologize. Um, uh, and I think actually his style lends itself better to movies like United 93, Bloody Sunday, and Captain Phillips than the Bourne movies, which I like, but um, but the nature of those movies, like his his style grounds them in reality, but they're still ridiculous. Yeah. Whereas... Well, as- as a lover of the Bourne movies, or at least the first three, yeah. I will still agree with you about oh, that. Oh, yeah. And just, whereas these, it's a reminder like, no, you're here, and you're not going anywhere. And and it's interesting, both in United 93 and in Captain Phillips, they're both about people stuck in one very specific place, mm-hmm. and they cannot get out. And so his style works really well with a from a claustrophobic standpoint, even on a giant boat. I think... And then a, and then a much smaller boat. Um, the... The comparison between 1993 and Captain Phillips is really apt because I think something that um, uh, apparently fascinates Paul Greengrass, um, he likes to take people like that are held up as heroes and make them human, mm-hmm. but then say, isn't that even more impressive? Oh, absolutely. Like the fact that they are human and they still did this is more impressive than elevating them to some swashbuckling hero or something. Yeah. Captain you know? Phillips in his film, in this film is like more heroic than Jason Bourne. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Because, and, or at least it's more impressive. Yeah. Because he's a real person. And so it's more marvelous that he did the things that he did. Yeah. Especially because like, you know, I'm sorry to bash the Jason Bourne movies. I do like them a lot. Um, but it's like Jason Bourne has training for almost any situation. Captain Phillips has very specific training uh-huh. but not f- and and this situation could kind of come up but his training is how to prevent it and then right. if and, he does and if some he does some things yeah i know <laughs> to, to help prevent it but once it happens he's in it yeah and then that's where the training stops and that's when it's like all right it's i often think of this um it's almost a homer simpson way of thinking where there have been times when i find myself in a situation that i am not uh, a fan of um, like, oh, I've, uh, locked my keys in my car or something like that. Um, and, uh, it's usually that one. Um, and what I often say is, all right, brain, get to it. Uh, and it's just, there's a solution here and you need to figure it out. Uh, and so, um, and that's what's happening with Captain Phillips. And it's one of the things that I like about Tom Hanks performance. I don't want to st- talk only about his performance, but 
one of the reasons that the film, a major reason that the film works as well as it does is because we have an actor who conveys intelligence, but not, he's not Kevin Spacey. Kevin Spacey displays a certain type of cunning intelligence. Yeah. Yeah. Tom Hanks shows common sense intelligence, the kind that you can find just in almost anybody. There is an everyman quality to him and, and he brings that and just the way that he's able to adapt to the situation and do what he can to save his crew and to save himself uh, is, is brilliant. But then what I like, a lot of people talk, have talked about the last 10 minutes and admittedly the film would not be the film that I love right. if it weren't for that last 10 minutes, Absolutely. because in that last 10 minutes, it's saying this guy's not Jason Bourne. This is how a regular person responds, even when they're safe. Right. Like all the stuff that's pent up over the course of the film, all the tension there at the end, there's finally the release of tension. And it's not Jason Bourne giving a slight smile and being like, all right, on to the next one. Not that he's yeah. that. He's not that type. Yeah. He's that's modern day John McClain. Um, but uh, the, it's it's raw and it's so tremendously human. I mean, I watched that scene at the end and it's so relatable. If I were him, the first thing I would be doing is like being like my, I need my wife to know I'm safe, that I'm okay more than anything. That's what I want. And undoubtedly he's thinking that the whole film, but he can't allow that to dictate his actions. Yeah. It's such a, and then of course, Barkat Abdi's character is, is never really, he as a person is never condemned, but his actions absolutely are. Mm -hmm. And I like that the film acknowledges that you can actually say, yes, this person comes from a bad situation. And if you were in that situation, you might do the same. That doesn't mean what you were doing is right. I like that. It's actually possible to have both. Yeah. I think, um, I'm glad you mentioned the wife thing. Cause I, in that sort of, uh, almost, um, mundane domestic, uh, concern, because as much as this is a, a low-to-the-ground adventure film, which it kind of is, mm-hmm. it's also an allegory for the disappearing middle class, both on the, sh- on the ship yeah. and where... Um, I'm forgetting his name, Barkhad Abdi's character. Uh, like like uh, M- uh, Muse or something like that. Okay. It's spelled uh, like Muse, right, but right, it's right. not pronounced that way. Um, it, where he comes from, it's... Um, uh, Paul Greengrass is telling the story using the sort of classically literal definition of cutthroat mm-hmm. in the fact that it's about pirates and then also making a comparison to the way that the disappearing middle class has made competition for jobs um, and to keep the job that you have yeah. more cutthroat. Uh, anyway. And this, and this idea that, you know, Captain Phillips and the crew, their lives are on the line for somebody else's product. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And this idea that, and that's the, you know, it's like, you're never going to really get past that. There's nothing I think inherently evil about that, but, um, maybe, uh, maybe the lives on the line. I don't know if that's evil, but it's like, uh, maybe that's not the, the best thing. Like feel, it feels like there should be more than merely more, more than security measures. It feels like there should be security officers <laughs> right. uh, yeah, on yeah. there, but that's, that's neither here nor there. And so, um, so in both cases, you have people putting their lives on the line in some way, shape, or form 
for somebody else's benefit. Yeah. Um, which is something I've been thinking a lot about, especially since seeing uh, Cheap Thrills. But uh, so, yeah, it's a wonderful film that I that I really loved m- much more than I thought I would. Uh, I thought I would like it, but I didn't think I would love it this much. So moving on, your number three. My number three is Shane Carruth's Upstream Color. Hey. Which was one of your. That was my number 11, basically. Your, yeah, your honorable mention. Um, this is, uh, I think the film has taken some, I don't know if it's flack, but it's gotten a lot of talk about being sort of fractured and incomprehensible and impressionistic and all that stuff. Um, but it actually is a much more straightforward story than people are, uh, realizing or thinking about or giving it credit for. Well, I think maybe the re- the reason people are upset is that I, I agree. I think it's a very straightforward film. Uh, straightforward story once the story is over like once once it is once you see the thing completed you're like oh yeah that's pretty straightforward but in the moment it's not it doesn't reveal itself to be that until mm-hmm. a solid i'd say 75 percent of the way in i see what you're saying um, so i could see being people being like but yes but think, why now i still think the emotional arc is is consistent and i felt i never felt a drift in the movie mm-hmm um, even though the characters very much do feel adrift, that's a big part of what it's about. Essentially, it's a science fiction movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's not, it doesn't take place in the future or in space or anything like that. But um, the idea is that there's some sort of flower that gives off... I'm trying to remember. It's been a while since I've seen it now. But, like, basically this guy makes a drug from a flower, I think. Mm-hmm. But then there's also pigs involved because the pigs fertilize the flowers like that all right yeah there's a lot of there's uh, like five steps in this thing now i'm just like we're like totally like uh blowing up our conceit that it's a straightforward story because we're forgetting like how but anyway well, there's we're straightforward does not mean it's not it doesn't mean it's simple right yeah so basically they get this drug that uh and then this guy uses the drug he drugs people and it puts them into sort of a hypnotic state where they will do whatever he says and what he says for them to do is to clean out their bank accounts or embezzle from their jobs or Mm -hmm. get him a lot of money. And then he just ditches them. And then they, once the effects of the drug wear off, they have no memory of it. Yeah. But they also don't go back to being who they were. Their minds are scrambled in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, and I think much like I said, Captain Phillips has a lot of domestic concerns underneath the surface of its, uh, adventure story, um, facade, uh, this is really a film about being about, I think, maybe middle class ennui. I think that's really what it's about, about feeling feeling adrift or feeling lost despite being where you think maybe you're supposed to be. That's how I felt about it hmm. a lot, is that I guess it's sort of... I... I go through my life with a schedule and I have these rules that I talk about. Here's me getting personal, like you talked about uh, mm-hmm. as we get closer to the number one. Uh, but I often feel that if I let in the feelings of how unsure I am about everything in my life all the time, I wouldn't be able to function. Right. And I think that's maybe why this film connected with me so much is that, uh, Amy Simus, Amy Simitz, who's amazing in the movie, yeah, uh, and Shane Carruth, who's fine in the movie, um, both have had this happen to them, and they found each other, yeah. And there's a great deal of comfort in the fact that they found one another, but that doesn't make them whole. 
it's not like they go back to, oh, now everything makes sense. They're still all fucked up. Yeah. And they're still terrified a lot of the time of things maybe they don't know. They don't even know what they're terrified of. But the world is very scary to them. Yeah. And they have each other, and that is comfort up to a point. And um, the movie makes that point without... It's not cynical about saying finding someone isn't enough. It's basically saying finding someone else in this world is maybe the most important thing and the most helpful thing you can ever do, but it's not the answer to all your problems. Right. Which I, I agree with. Um, yeah, the, uh, yeah, the thing that I, uh, I'm going to, at this point I've been Christian so long that I kind of forget what is and is not a Christian term. Uh, and so, uh, the term brokenness, does that mean anything to you? Um, I mean, I know what literally it means. Yes. Okay. Uh, what it, means in the christian world regarding people is is like human brokenness means like frailty flaws regret and wrongdoing and then also just the ways that maybe life has hurt you and the wounds that you that you bear as a result um i feel like it's a film about human brokenness i think it's even bigger than like like you said the middle class that's no small thing i think it's bigger than that i think it's I think the middle class is small potatoes compared to what I think the film is talking about. Um, and that's, and by the way, we've, we've ventured into a room 237 category, uh, territory. Uh, what do you listeners, what do you think upstream <laughs> colors about? I know what Paul Goebel thinks it's about, yeah. thinks it is about, which is bullshit. Um, but, uh, yeah, uh, you mentioned pigs. Okay. So what happens is, uh, I believe this little like uh, worm type thing gets implanted in a, the worm part. Yeah. It. Yeah. It's super gross um, and really gets you ugh, squirming a little bit. Uh, anyway. So, um, so these people, this worm lives in their body and, and takes control of their, it doesn't take control of their mind, but it, it disables the part of their mind that would say, Hey, I, I don't want to give you all my money. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it just grows and grows inside them. And then after a certain point, um, once they've given everything they can give, uh, they, the person is drawn towards this sound. And then a guy performs some surgery on them that pulls the worm out of them, mm-hmm. but then doesn't kill the worm but instead he puts it inside a pig and then all of the pigs with these worms that, that were once in these people, all these pigs are in this field just running around and it's very strange, uh, as yeah. you know, straightforward flower stra- in there somewhere too. Yeah, absolutely. I think the, f- man, I think like, I think the, the little worms like eat the soil from the flat that the flower is in there's a lot of stuff yeah. going on anyway um uh and i haven't seen it in a while i remembered cert- i remember certain things like that worm thing that isn't going anywhere in my brain <laughs> i know exactly what that was but um anyway so uh so towards the end of the film it keeps cutting back to these people's pigs and the guy that is tending them and uh, and he doesn't seem like a terrible person, uh, though he's in on this whole thing. Yeah. So clearly there's something not great about him. Uh, and so these characters are trying to deal with what is wrong with me? What have I done or what has happened to me that has caused me to feel this way? And then they eventually find each other. And as you said, that's not quite enough. 
but towards the end, they actually stumble on no, you know, cobbling together, you know, the thing, the certain memories mm-hmm. about the, this whole process, they're able to determine to a certain extent what has happened. And they happen upon these, these pigs. And I feel, I, I'm sorry if this is spoiler territory, it seems weird to talk about that with yeah. upstream color, but, and then each, and then each person takes possession of their own pig and they nourish it. You'd think to a certain extent, it's like, Hey, let's kill these pigs, right? Uh, this sounds, <laughs> this is horrible. This is a horrible thing. And let's kill these pigs, but they don't, they recognize that in some way, these pigs are a part of themselves. Mm-hmm. And so each one takes his respective pig, which yes, sounds silly when you put it like that. And they, they don't kill them. In fact, they keep them alive. They feed them and they take care of them. And to me, it just seems, it seems like among other things, this idea of each of us, we all have some things we've done. Some things have been done to us. Life kicks you in the balls constantly for the most part. Uh, and just, and it can be very frustrating and like, it can be very scary, very confusing living like that, but eventually, and yes, you can find another person to help you through this world. But I think each, everybody needs to acknowledge not, not merely acknowledge what their wounds are, but recognize like, this is who I am. It's, I'm not merely the good part of me that I like to put out there. I am also this, and this is not necessarily a good thing, but it is a part of me. And we all need to sort of take, take responsibility for it. Even the stuff that wasn't our fault, it's still a part of us now. And we still have a responsibility to that thing and to ourselves and what that means for like larger society and interaction with and interaction with other people. Um, I think it's an inherently humbling thing to do that and acknowledge like, Hey, I'm not perfect myself, but if the other person's doing that as well, then I think there's a much better basis for a relationship, whether it be romantic relationship or a friendship or whatever. Um, and so I feel like the film is about no no less than that. (laughs) Um, but yeah, so it just, it just really, I don't know. It just really, uh, really got me. I feel it's like, what number was it on yours? 11. Ah, right. Just outside. Yeah. Just outside. I saw a couple movies towards the end there. I'm like, ah, son of a bitch. Upstream (laughs) color just got bumped out. Well, what's your number three then? My number three is inside Lewin Davis. I saw that one. Yeah. It's one of my honorable, honorable mentions. Indeed. You're right there. Yeah. That's a tough word to say. Honorable. If If you're me. Honorable. Yeah, it's tough if you. That's true. I did. I did just say honorable. <laughs> I don't like that at all. Um, yeah, inside Lewin Davis Cohen Brothers. Uh, I, I feel like we've talked a fair amount about it. Film I think is visually beautiful. It has wonderful music in it. There's a cyclical quality about just not unlike Francis Ha, but not certainly in many ways very unlike it. Uh, just about this guy who has these certain ambitions. And he's pursuing them, but he's also pursuing them as a deeply wounded individual. As you talked about, I forget who it was that mentioned that Jordan it's, Hoffman. okay, that it is very much about the grieving process and feeling like you've had your legs taken out from under you, but you still have to do this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and everywhere he goes, because the person that he lost was his, 
you know, his partner, his musical partner, that means every time he plays a gig, every time he auditions, every time he puts his album out there, he's reminded that this isn't what it used to be. Right. And frankly, it probably used to be better. Me by myself is not that great. And so, um, so it's a really, it's a really great, uh, representation of that. And do you think so much more? We've talked a little bit about, about different movies being cynical on this episode. Um, the, and this is sort of like, uh, it, it's a movie that depending on how you interpret, um, the last scene in terms of the film's chronology, mm-hmm. uh, it could be seen as hopeful or cynical because on the one hand, towards the end, he does, there, there's a moment that he, uh, trying to figure out, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. We, we've been spoiling other stuff. So mm-hmm. I'm spoiling it. So I, I don't feel that. So he doesn't let the cat out at the end. Right. He keeps the cat from escaping at the end. Yeah. But then after that, we see the scene that is the, you know, the carbon copy of the scene from the beginning. Yeah. So is he, has he changed? Is the cat supposed to, uh, clue us in that he's getting better, that he's changing as a person? Or is the scene after that supposed to clue us in that he's just living an endless cycle and will never get any better or worse? Ah, I think it's a combination of the two. Okay. I think an endless cycle does not necessarily imply you're not getting any better. Um, It could be a little bit at a time. Where I think the real cynicism kicks in is when you hear Bob Dylan. Uh And you're just like, ah, shit. (laughs) It's like suddenly an endless cycle sounds pretty good. Sounds it's preferable to just out and out failure and complete eclipse of anything that you might have to offer. Um, But yeah, and I think I think it's it's very much, you know, because I think I do think as as we change as people, it's inch by inch. I don't think it's anything as giant as as you know the the arc that we were talking about in uh, in uh, the act of killing, mm-hmm. um, and maybe that guy's arc is is a big one because of the nature of who he is and the things he's done. I think, and I, most, also that film was it was filmed over years. Fair Inside enough. Inside Davis, Davis takes place over over a week. Yeah. Yeah. Which is another uh, bit of brilliance because there's, there is a timeless, there's an outside of time quality. Which is it. at one point even commented on the film, yeah. which is very funny. Oh, <laughs> it's only a couple of days, but I guess it fell off. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. And so, um, so yeah, I think, I certainly don't think the film is optimistic, but I think, I think it's, I think his progress as a person is measurable, but only by, centimeters here and there and one can make the argument that the stuff that he learns is not actually the stuff that he does learn isn't quite as vital as the things he doesn't learn he does learn all right cat taken care of mm-hmm. not getting the shit beat out of me for being an asshole to somebody <laughs> uh that one's going to take some time yeah you know and so uh so it's a film that i do think anybody not, not unlike Francis Ha, it's a film that I think anybody who has any kind of artistic ambition or any just kind of high ambition, something that's hard to accomplish, um, can relate to. But then anybody who's uh, ever felt hobbled by something, whatever it might be, um, I think they can relate as well. Like you still have to do and you still have to go and do this shit in your life, but you have to do it with all of these, with all of like with all of the 
I'll go back to brokenness with all the brokenness of your life. And by the way, you're also still making mistakes as we all do day to day. So you have to live with that now too. And it's just, uh, I don't know. And yet the film is still very, so beautiful to look at. And, and the music is so gorgeous. Because it's not a Roger Deakins film. Right. It's Bruno Del Bonnell. And so it, it does look different than other um, Coen Brothers films. It doesn't have the same starkness to it. It's not at soft. all. It's, it's very soft. It's very fuzzy. Yeah. And, and very, uh, I don't know, very... Uh, desaturated like Mm -hmm. that you don't see a lot of tan people and admittedly it takes place in the winter but you see a lot of people a lot of uh it's almost tim burton-esque in uh, people's skin color uh now i think last time we talked about the the movie on the podcast you hadn't seen it yet scott and i were talking about it after afi fest uh Uh, we talked about it briefly with graham but that was that was it did you love carrie mulligan as much as i did no I mean, as a performance. Not as oh, a yeah. Performance. Oh, as a performance. Yeah, she's yeah. great. Yeah, yeah, she's hilarious. I'm yeah. glad you feel the same. As a character, it's just like, ugh. But don't you... I mean, Lighten up. Yeah. <laughs> like, he even did what he was supposed to, and you're still mad. Yeah. I don't know. I feel for I feel for her a little bit. Well, I feel for her, certainly, but I feel for him, too. Okay. Home stretch. Yeah. Here we go. My number two. This is going to be... This is this is a, this is a surprise one. I didn't put it on here to be a surprise. Oh, okay. I put it on here because that's my second favorite movie of the year. But it's not showing up on a lot of lists at all. Uh, it's David Gordon Green's Prince Avalanche, which I still have not seen. It's it, it's um, I've mentioned a couple times now in different episodes about this being a year of surprises, and this was a both a surprise and a return to familiarity in a lot of ways because okay. david gordon green has done been i'm not going to comment on whether the good or bad but he's been doing different things in recent years the past five or six years some of them are apparently quite bad <laughs> um like your highness your highness is really really bad okay um but he's also done some stuff on eastbound and down that was really good mm-hmm. uh but um a lot of people i think in writing about prince avalanche have said or talking about it have said oh this is uh this is the melding of his earlier more uh ethereal uh more artsy if you will approach and his comedies but i think those people are forgetting how funny his earlier works are mm-hmm. there's plenty of comedy in in george washington and in all the real girls uh but you know i, I don't want to dwell on that what i want to dwell on is that prince avalanche is a a beautiful, beautiful movie that is also incredibly funny. And Emil Hirsch is not someone that I think of as a comedic actor. Yeah, no. He has some lines in this. He's talking about... The the premise is that Paul Rudd and Emil Hirsch are part of a road crew that are repainting the lines in this part of Texas that has been completely burnt. All the... Like a forest fire. Mm -hmm. They're the roads that go through this this forest that everything, so everything around them is, is burnt trees mm-hmm. and they have to repaint the lines and re-put the like mile markers and, and the reflective, you know, dots and stuff on miles and miles of uh two lane highway. Mm-hmm. And they work there Monday through Friday and they live out there and they get to go home for the weekend. Um, and uh, it, it well, to get back to what I was saying about Emil Hirsch being funny, there's one part where Emil Hirsch takes their little sort of work truck out and it um, 
takes him a while to get back. It turns out he has a, he had a flat tire. And he says, uh, his line is, um, have you ever tried to change the chi- tire on one of those trucks? It was so hard. It took so long. <laughs> it's, so, it's very funny. It's very funny coming from Neil Hirsch. who's not an actor that you expect to behave yeah. like that. Um, but uh, that, that that's just a, you know, a part of the very, very bizarre comedy. You know, it's part of, they make up a song together. Um, everything's very strange in the movie. Uh, the comedy is not really, uh, it's, it's not strictly a comedy. I feel like I'm, I'm having trouble describing the movie because, okay. uh, it's a difficult movie to describe. So I'll, I'll get into allegory. Um, like Stranger by the Lake, we never see outside of, even though they go home for the weekends, we only see them when they're in the forest. Mm-hmm. And there are a couple other characters who show up here and there who may or may not be real. Okay. Um, and what they're doing may or may not be their actual job and may or may not be taking place in any sort of reality at all. Because there's a part where they get... Um, completely trashed on some booze that has been given to them given to them by one of the characters who might not exist uh and they go on a rampage painting lines in all sorts of crazy ways and painting lines around one another like chalk outlines and they completely ruin miles of road and then they never have to do anything about it there's no repercussion from it because the implication is that they're not really here to paint lines they're here to figure themselves out, I guess, is <laughs> what it's about. Um, the way they know each other is that Paul Rudd is dating Emile Hirsch's older sister. Okay. Um, but it's not going well, that relationship. Uh, and Paul Rudd and Emile Hirsch could not be more different. The story, the behind-the-scenes story, as I heard it told, is that David Gordon Green knew he wanted to cast Paul Rudd and Emile Hirsch in these two roles, and they'd never met before. So he invited them to lunch, and it was very awkward, and they didn't have anything in common or anything to talk about. And David Gurney Green was like, perfect. Because <laughs> uh, that's exactly the relationship. Paul Rudd is a sort of a guy who um, is internal. He thinks a lot. He philosophizes a lot. He likes being out in nature. Uh, Emil Hirsch is someone who is just basically trying to make money so that he can buy new clothes and go out on the weekend to bars and try to hook up with girls. Uh and it's it's sort of a very you know uh the one is a very uh, re- uh self-reflective philosophy of life and the one is the exact opposite of that a very visceral uh active philosophy of life and uh i guess i wouldn't say the movie is about anything as tried as them becoming friends uh but it is about you know I, i've talked about getting off topic here, but I've talked about the amazing race a lot and how it throws people together of different backgrounds, even though they're all, they're all Americans on the amazing race. That's always, uh, that's one of the prerequisites, but, um, they learn things about one another. And we, as viewers learn things about other people who share the same world with us. Yeah. Um, and that's as close as I can describe to what happens in Prince Avalanche. Uh, but so you're saying I, like I enjoy the Amazing Race. Are you saying I would like Prince Avalanche? Yeah, probably. As a result of that, yes. Okay. Uh, but this—it's a movie that's about. It's sort of like you're talking about Place Beyond the Pines. It's there's so much going on that I have trouble saying it's about any one thing. Hmm. 
it's uh but it's many things there's a reason it's so high on my list it's many of the things i love in a movie it's deep it's hilarious and it's not very long <laughs> all right it's about 95 minutes long i think uh david we're getting older we don't have a lot of time left yeah. there's also um I'll, I'll this is the last thing i'll talk about there's a bit of physical comedy from paul rudd that is the funniest and the har- most heartbreaking thing that um you can even imagine hmm. it's basically he goes one of the time like one of the weekends that emil hirsch has gone back to town for the weekend paul rudd he often stays out in the in the weekends and just camps and spends time by himself and he's walking around and he finds the foundation in of of a house that burned in the fire mm-hmm. and he starts imagining the floor plan and basically acts like he's coming home to a wife in this house hmm. uh and there's a part where even though it's just it's just the foundation it's just like the first floor it's all that's there yeah there's a part where he runs sort of not not runs like at a hurried pace but just sort of like quickly bounds up the stairs but there are no stairs he mimes running upstairs to say hi to his wife who's in the bedroom his imaginary wife is in the bedroom and what he does with his body while running up or down stairs is the funniest thing in the world paired with this really sort of sad commentary on his loneliness and his inability he's so inside his own head that he's in, he's not able to um have the sort of normal life that he would want out in the real world hmm. it's an amazing little sequence that sounds great and that and that movie is also available uh on netflix so people okay. can watch that instantly instantly right now yep what's your number two my number two is spike jones her oh good i saw that one yeah all right um i feel like we've talked so much about it because we did our whole yeah talk about it on the uh on the bp ceremony yeah and i'm interested the next full episode of more than one lesson is going to be about her and uh peek behind the curtain uh there was a moment when i was thinking maybe i'll maybe i'll go it alone on this one instead of having josh there um because it is so personal to me. Like my reaction to it is so personal is it happens to be hitting me right in the middle of a time when I'm dealing with some stuff, but it's like, first off, okay. Technical stuff out of the way. Um, uh, the, I like its view of the future. It's, it's the kind of sci-fi I like that. It all seems very feasible like extremely feasible mm-hmm. um, from the types of video games that they play and how they play it. And then like the, the way technology will progress uh, and then little things like changes in fashion. Not everybody's wearing, you know, like the silver jumpsuit jumpsuit with the V stripe. Right. Instead it's little things like people wear the same things they wear now, except now like the pants are a little higher waisted yeah. and it's just, and, belts. yeah. And mustaches are, are a thing again, <laughs> you know? And it's just, and that's the thing you look at hipster culture. Now it's like, we're almost there. Yeah. Like yeah. clearly Spike Jones looked around at his friends and said, okay, what, I see where we're headed. What is Chris, Chris Pratt buys the shirt and he says, I just thought this was a shirt that a like cool guy would wear. <laughs> yeah. And it's like the dorkiest shirt. <laughs> the dorkiest that, like, thing. My dad would have been wearing when I was a little kid. <laughs> um, but yeah. And so, so I like that. I like the way it uses, uh, technology. I, I like that, uh, 
I like that anything that is a technological advance, even if that means uh, romantic, um, people in this world are not surprised by it. Uh, when he says he's dating an OS, people are, some people are happy for him. Yeah. Some people might be surprised, but it doesn't last very long. Except um, for one person. Except for one person, a notable person. Um, but, uh, and I just, I like, uh, was it her that you were talking about that somebody watched it and said like, I just, this is too weird for me. What was it? It was, yeah, it was at the screening that I was at, the woman behind me was saying, and it was, uh, this will blow up your stereotypes. It was a, the younger daughter saying to her older mother, All right. the younger one was like, this is too weird. <laughs> I don't think I can handle this. This is so weird. And I, I, there was a version of that in the theater where I saw the film in which across the aisle for me was a middle-aged woman who, and the film is funny at times. Mm -hmm sometimes very funny but the parts she was laughing at were the emotionally heart-wrenching or gut-wrenching times and heartbreaking times and stuff like that um and it clearly it was like it could she like she was like right out of a john cassavetti's film where it's like i'm feeling something and i don't know what to do with it so i'm just gonna start laughing oh. um it felt like that have i ever told you about my experience of seeing young adult no where there were I concocted a whole story. Oh, there were good. a group right. of middle-aged women who sat behind us. And my the story that I concocted is that these are these are mothers. They don't get a whole lot of time out. Yeah. They had this one night to have the girls' night out. They probably had dinner, maybe a couple of drinks beforehand. They decided we're going to see a comedy. And so no matter what happened <laughs> in young adult, they were seeing a fucking comedy. Yeah. And they laughed at some of the most inappropriate parts. Yeah. But it was like this group, like this, this group, uh, hypnosis of them, yeah. uh, imagining they were seeing, uh, I don't know, stepbrothers or something. Like, Ma'am, this, this isn't funny. Don't take this from me. <laughs> it's all I have. Um, yeah, it's, uh, and so, uh, her, and, and so, uh, that story that you told, it reminded, I think you and I had a conversation on the show about it, about the idea of it's precisely because nobody, only one person objects to it. Uh -huh. uh, but of course, it's a person who has more than a little bias right, yeah. in the situation. And so, but everybody else are, not only do they not judge it, but they're, they're kind of excited about it, like, oh, good for you and yeah. stuff like that. And so, uh, and I could see someone who's not used to that would be like, doesn't there, why doesn't any, why isn't anybody upset about this? Why doesn't anybody <laughs> think this is strange? Uh, this is a little too weird for me. Like I, I could understand that, but there's also all, there's all kinds of ancillary weird stuff. Oh yeah. There's plenty. Like um, his job is weird. Yeah. Yeah. Although that seems, it seems so, so very plausible, uh, yeah. to me, but, um, but yeah. And so, uh, obviously the, you know, the film is kind of about technology taking the place of, uh, actual human interaction, which is something that movies have. I think that's one of. It's one of the things it's about. I don't think it's even the main thing it's about. Actually, I I agree. Um, like that's why I wanted to say it and then move on. Okay. Because I think that's what the film does. It explores that and then moves on. It's why one of the first things you see is his job, which mm -hmm. is a prime example of people pay him to say things nice. Right. About, you know, say nice things to, to their loved ones. Uh, but then the it moves on. Beautiful handwritten letters.com. <laughs> um, 
but then it moves on and it winds up being about something again, something bigger than that. And that's no, and again, I, I, you know, every time we do this year end thing, there does tend to be a through line in Mm -hmm. some of the things that we talk about. Um, that I think you're like, all right, I guess let's look back on this year. And, uh, apparently this is what film was this year. Um, and so, uh, but I will repeat myself and say technology taking the place of human interaction. That's no small theme, but that's like films just getting started at that point. And it's about something much larger than that. And it's that thing that hit me like a freaking older, I think. Oh, no question. Yeah. Yeah. Something it's themes I think are, are timeless. And so, um, the film that I'm actually going to be, uh, 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 pairing it with on more than one lesson will be uh, eternal sunshine. Um, not that that's, although I guess at this point that movie is 10 years old. (laughs) Jeez. Did you ever see, remember remember, um, compare more recent comparison to her is Ruby sparks. Did you ever see that? I didn't. I heard it was actually pretty good. It's, it's decent. It's not, it's not great, but it's not bad. Yeah. And it explores some of the same themes. And so the thing that, where it hit me, and I'm not going to turn this into a uh, therapy session right now, but, uh, cause we would be here for a while, but, uh, I've actually been thinking recently about, uh, like just, uh, relationships and the imperfection of relationships and the imperfection of other people and how genuinely scary that is, um, that you are counting on other people to a certain extent to like help you if you need help and that you are offering to help them if they need help. But, you know, I know how much I suck at so many things. And then when you realize that other people suck the same way, you're just like, Oh my gosh, these, these are the people that are going to help me mm-hmm. with whatever it is. And just feeling like that's terrifying. I don't, I can't trust anybody. I can't count on anybody. Not for lack of trying, not, for, it's not their fault. It's, it's human nature. And I actually have to, and these are the people I'm counting on. And it's like, I, I can't, I can't deal with that. Like, and it came about from this weird, this weird thing where I was operating. It, this is not a, by the way, a popular theory in Christian circles. And I know that it's incorrect, <laughs> but, uh, just the idea that, uh, person to person forgiveness is, uh, absolutely impossible. Um, <laughs> so I've talked with a number of people about that and they're like, well, here's some, thoughts about that i was like "Mm, i guess so i know objectively you're right and yet somehow i that is not translated into my feelings and so this idea of wishing so desperately that other people and probably yourself that like that you wish other people were perfect so that you could finally count on them and that you could rest easy and be like all right finally I, i i can trust this but and and in, in this film to do that means to literally remove yourself from actual human beings and even then the more he develops a, a genuine relationship with this piece of technology the film does not condemn samantha mm-hmm. does not turn her into a villain which would would have been easy to do all it does is turn her into a person and the more you actually relate to somebody on a personal level the more you will realize yeah they're not perfect either there is no perfect option here yeah and yeah, there are times, and that's the thing. At where I am in my life right now, and where it's not where I need to be, because where I am is that is a very sad fact for me. I want it to not be true. 
So uh, her hit me at a very specific time in my life. It dovetails your read dovetails with mine in that um, I think it's what I got from it is more about how you can never really, no matter how much you love a person, how familiar you are with them, you never really know them. You only know the parts of them you choose to or that fit for you. And uh, to a certain extent, the more you can accept a person's, um, the the parts of a person that are inconsistent with that idea, the deeper you will love them. Mm-hmm. But there's always the risk that you're going to come upon, come upon, come upon, knowing a person well enough that you know too much about them and you're no longer compatible with them. Yeah. Or you get, you get to a point where it's like, I can't get over this one, whatever it is. It could be something they do. It could be something they say or could, or it could be something they are, which is, which is specifically very hard to deal with. And there's a fear of what happens when the day, when the day comes and my wife says, this thing to me and I cannot get past it or what happens when I say something and they decide I can't get past it. As Amy Adams says, I don't want to be married anymore over something so small. Yeah. Like scary, terrifying to me. (laughs) It's like if my fiance and I am planning a wedding, if she said for the reception, she wanted a Billy Joel song. I don't know if I could get over it. Especially if it was Uptown Girl. Especially in which case, in which case like, not only can I not marry you, I think I have to kill you. Um, but yeah. And so, so the film like explores these things and that's the thing for who I am. And by the way, my number one is going to deal with this too. Yeah. So, so, so that should tell you something about where I am right now. But anyway, her is a wonderful film. It won the BP for best picture and best original screenplay and rightfully so moving on. All right. My number one, here's what I'm going to do. Okay. I'm going to come back full circle to my worst of the year. Your, Excuse me. Your favorite is Man of Steel? No, but the thing I said about Man of Steel. Okay. One of the many complaints I had is that it's trying so hard with every frame and every ounce and every decibel of its being to impress you. Mm-hmm. But it's completely artless in doing so. Yeah. It's just screaming at you for two and a half hours. <laughs> uh, whereas the film I chose as my number one, which is Paolo, Sorrent- Sorrentin- Paolo Sorrentino's the Great Beauty mm-hmm. is a film that is such pure, dazzling cinema from beginning to end. It does without special effects, without killing millions of people, without laser vision or spaceships or just crushing, pounding noise all the time. Uh, it did what Man of Steel set out to do, which is be be a perfect spectacle, hmm. while also being while also telling a, tr- a, a story. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's been compared, um, by people such as me to, uh, La Dolce Vita, uh, which is also one of my favorite films of all time, uh, in that it depicts, and it also, in this way, I would say, um, correlates to another film that I didn't get to talk about at all that, that I, but that I quite liked this year, which is Baz Luhrmann's The Great Gatsby, uh, in, in that it depicts, all the beautiful excess of the upper class mm-hmm. and the the lives of people who don't need to work and have all the money they need and more and spend every night going to parties and drinking and they 
you know, all have sex with one another and there's no consequence to everything and everything is just easy for them all the time and full of luxury and great beauty. Uh, and when it's always like that all the time, it's really sad and meaningless and eventually boring. Yeah. And so the great beauty is about, um, I'm drawing a blank. Tony Servillo is the actor's name who, uh, is a member of the society. He's a, he's a writer. He wrote a novel when he was younger. Um, and, uh, it's brought him some acclaim, even though he sort of distances, distances himself from it now, partially because he's changed and he's not as pretentious a person. And partially because he is a pretentious person and distancing himself from his younger work is the fashionable thing to do. Uh, (laughs) Incidentally, we do not stand by those first 40 episodes of Battleship Pretension. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, and it's a, it's a movie, you know, the first 15 minutes or so of this movie, I was reminded of uh, I Am Cuba. Did you ever see that? No, I haven't. Which is a movie that doesn't really have much of a story. It just sort of showcases a vibrant culture. And 15 minutes into The Great Beauty, you'd would be perfectly justified in asking is there a story to this yeah because it starts with um a really beautiful scene of a group of tourists touring rome and a choir singing that we never revisit and we never have any idea what what it means Mm -hmm. but the it's sort of like we talked about the matthew mcconaughey scene in wolf of wall street it's a clue to what we're gonna see it's these tourists who have come to see this one thing, this one building, mm-hmm. whatever it is. I don't even know. It's some be- old building in Rome. Um, and there's a tour guide telling them about it. There's a choir singing behind them in the building. It's all very beautiful in a way that is safe and packaged and presented. Mm-hmm. But it's also on a hill that if all these people were just to turn around, they'd see they're overlooking the entire city of Rome. Not, Not this preserved past beauty that they're trying to hang on to or recapture with their cameras. They'd see the vibrant now contemporary beauty of bustling Rome. Mm -hmm. One of the tourists happens to notice this and he breaks away from the group, goes, takes a picture of the city and then has a heart attack and dies. Hmm. That's how the movie starts off. And then we get a long, long party scene on a rooftop in Rome of just decadence just like just rich people old rich people in fancy clothes drinking and dancing mm-hmm. uh and then we get to spend the rest of the movie figuring what is that figuring out what is that original scene what does that initial scene have to do uh with uh with the movie and uh i think it's about that if you're spending your life trying too hard to live a life you think is right or to capture some sort of intangible beauty, I guess, to use the uh, film's term, you might miss the fact that everything around you is vital and beautiful and breathtaking all the time. And these people, sort of like the characters in Stranger by the Lake, which I mentioned earlier, are so cloistered that they don't have any fucking idea what the... Hmm what beauty is they're so surrounded by beauty that they can't see the forest for the trees maybe is what i'm saying 
So the so the I want to make sure I've I've got this right, and so uh, please correct me if I'm wrong. So the opulent beauty that these uh, very rich people that are ultimately bored uh-huh. uh, that they're surrounding themselves with that is something that proves to actually be distracting them from genuine beauty or right. does the film say that well that what they're dealing with is pretty beautiful too oh yeah i mean the presentation of it is i mean paulo sorrentino is presenting in a way that it is clearly breathtaking yeah. every shot in this movie is pure cinema hmm. um you could watch this movie with the sound off and still be completely transfixed by it nice um but yeah i think what they're what they're saying is what he's saying is that um you can't you can't codify what is important or beautiful in the world because everything potentially is and you have to live you can't it's sort of like it's interesting um hmm. having not seen the film uh, i will say that it's it's odd that uh the guy notices how beautiful Rome is looking, takes a photo and then has a heart attack and <laughs> dies because it's almost as though God or life or whatever you want to call it is saying like, no, even though you noticed how beautiful it is, you still want to capture it with your, with your camera. <laughs> right. No, just experience it. And that's something that, that, uh, you know, I mean, I'm married, like I'm married to a photographer, you know, and we went to Switzerland uh, several months ago and, we spent one day just walking around uh, uh, the Altstadt. No, uh, the old town of, of Zurich. Altstadt means old city. Oh, right? there we go. Good. Just making sure I remember. Um, so we were walking around uh, Zurich, and it was just gorgeous. It was just so beautiful. And obviously, Jen's going to bring her camera. That's who she is, and there's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with that. But, you know, sometimes I'm bothered, and then sometimes she, even she needs to be reminded that, you know, if you spend your whole trip behind a camera, it's really no different than you know, she's a wedding photographer. So mm-hmm. it's like it's really no different than how you spend the rest of your life, uh, which you do for a living, you know. But at the same time, that's part that's partially how she processes where she is. But she also does. She also tries to make sure to stop and actually experience what is around her rather than try to grab onto and one could say own everything because it's just like the picture could be the best thing ever it's not going to be the same mm-hmm. as if you're there um let's so say there's a tom waits lyric <laughs> uh in which he says that's not the road it's only the map and and i like that the idea of not like focusing so much on this one thing that yes is technically that thing these things are beautiful mm-hmm. but it's it's nowhere near as beautiful or, or organic or dynamic as the thing itself. Um, so yeah, There's, this, I, I, I assumed I would love this movie, but I just, by the time I heard of it, I couldn't really find it anywhere. Um, I got to see it. I played at the Sundance, uh, Sundance sunset. I don't know if you've been there since they, it no. used to be the sunset five. Right. Yeah. Uh, I haven't been there, but yeah, they've changed. It's a fun theater now. Um, one more thing I'll say about it, um, that you reminded me of when you talk about the, um, the character trying to capture it in, in dying. Mm-hmm. There's, um, uh, lest this movie sound too optimistic about the idea that there's great beauty out there. Uh, it does have, you remind me of another instance of trying to, trying to get too close to it and you lose mm-hmm. grasp of it. 
at one point, the Tony Savillo character starts a romance with a woman who is not a part of this world uh, that he lives in. She's a uh, an exotic dancer, to, mm. I guess, be polite about it. And they have a really, really beautiful relationship. And then, spoilers here, um, and then she dies in her sleep. And it's... Uh, what the hell? Incredibly, incredibly sad. And it's juxtaposed between an er- by an earlier scene when he's introducing her to his life of parties and lavish events and they're going to a funeral for mm-hmm. one of his one of her one of his friend's sons has died <laughs> and in that sense when it's part of this society event he's telling her what's going to happen at the funeral as if it's a choreographed party yeah or, or event and then a few scenes later she herself has died and it's uh unbelievably sad not in a crying way but in a like uh, uh, how could I have let myself? How could I have let myself think that I'd ever deserve this, or hmm. you know, uh, be able to hold on to this? Hmm. Interesting. Really fantastic movie. I, I want to watch it again right now. Yeah, it sounds really wonderful. Let's move on to your number one. We're All coming right. up on maybe our longest episode ever. I think we're coming up on it. Okay, but we're not there yet. And also. There's some stuff that needs to be cut out. That's true. So, and let's remember to cut that out because there's a there's a lot of incriminating stuff in those breaks. Um, So, uh, okay, my it's so interesting. I feel like year by year, if you were to take our number, our numbers one. um, I don't think that's how you say that, but uh, if you were to do that, um, (laughs) I didn't know what you meant for a second. Oh yeah, yeah, that's fine. So, um, the. uh, I feel like between those two, you would get an interesting view of film in general as an art form. And us as people. No question about it. <laughs> no question about it. Because here comes my number one. Yours, celebration of opulence. You can turn the sound off and it'll be just as good. <laughs> Mine, you turn the sound off, movie's over. Uh, and that is Nicole Hollis Center's Enough Said. Uh, a film that I thought was tremendously entertaining and just so simple in its execution and its general tone and atmosphere, but very complex when dealing with human emotion. I feel like I'm going to repeat a lot of what I said about her, um, because thematically it's all about people trying to avoid pain, trying to avoid the pain that comes from, you know, just relationships and just the wounds that, that, you know, we carry with us. Um, but that, and then doing something rather outlandish in order to do so. Uh, in this case, it's almost a almost a sitcom trope uh, yeah. where uh, this woman starts. Uh, Julie Louis Dreyfus plays this woman who starts dating this uh, divorced man. She is also divorced, uh, and then also unrelated to that becomes very close friends with his ex-wife and she's related. They meet at the same party. They meet at the same party, but she doesn't put it together and she doesn't meet them in relation to one another. She meets them same party in completely separate contexts and does not put it together immediately that they are, they are, uh, exes. And so, but when she does, she realizes, Oh, well, hang on a second. There's a little something here a little opportunity. And so as she's dating, uh, the man played by James Gandolfini, she is getting the dirt on him from his ex-wife played by Catherine Keener. 
rather than discovering the dirt on her own, she's getting all this stuff. Not unlike, uh, I mentioned Eternal Sunshine, not unlike Elijah Wood's character in Eternal Sunshine, where he's just just kind of stealing all the stuff that somebody <laughs> else earned. Um, right. So, uh, so she's finding out, like, okay, he does this, he does that, so how much should I commit to this person? And maybe I'll find out this bad thing or that bad thing, and maybe it will add up to a point where this is just going to end poorly for me. So rather than, uh, rather than just commit to this guy and acknowledge everyone's got their shit and he's no different and neither am I. So let's see what we can do. Uh, rather than do that, she would rather try to play it safe. And in the process, she winds up hurting a number of people. And she's also trying to make, uh, again, this relate to her. She's trying to make him as a person and as a participant in their relationship sort of finitely knowable. Yeah. Um, which is not the case. The way that Catherine Keener feels about James Canofini's character about the same things yeah. is not necessarily the way that she's going to feel. Exactly. That's the mistake that she makes is treating him as if he's uh, a puzzle to be solved or... Um, a list of items to be checked off yeah. or, or, or some, just something or just like, like a scale and just putting something on this side and that side and then hoping it balances out right. or the positive outweighs the negative. Uh, and that's the thing, a scale, like any of the things you're talking about, they are, like you said, finitely knowable. Like you, it's like, all right, you know, when you're done, the scale will tip one way or the other mm-hmm. or it'll balance out and then we're done. Uh, and that's not the nature of relationships. They're never done. You're always finding out more about a person, both positive and negative. And that's the thing. Like you could know. So Jen and I do a lot of uh, like pre-marriage counseling uh, as a function of our church. And one of the things that we talk, one thing that we say, it's like, hey, have you guys ever traveled together? <laughs> and they say no. It's like, all right. Not that we're recommending you necessarily do that because it can be costly. Mm-hmm. Uh but uh, be ready for that honeymoon because, uh, boy, oh, boy, you you really like you don't know somebody unless you've traveled with them. Now, even not, that's not to say that once you do, you know that person. But there is a reason Amazing Race works so well when it comes to personal dynamics. And there's a reason that Jen and I would probably get divorced if we were on the Amazing Race um, <laughs> because it's travel mixed with stress. And and that's the thing is like so there's just all these things that, and, and with each passing day, each passing month, like something else could come up that you never even thought about. Like, Oh shoot. I didn't even, I didn't even think about travel. Uh, can I, for example, to brag for a second, Natalie and I travel very well most of the time, but there was one fight the second time we were in new Orleans together. That was, Oh my God. Yeah. We were on Decatur street in the middle of the French quarter, just not giving a shit what people thought. Oh wow. <laughs> and, yeah, going at each other. That is really that's something. Uh, yeah, Jen tried to Jen and I try to save our arguments for the uh, for the the hotel where we're staying. And I will say, Jen and I travel pretty much the same way uh, as far as like when we're on the trip. We have it's not like one person wants to just relax and the other person wants to do everything um, and see all the sights. Like it's like all right, one thing a day, and the rest of the time we're just going to go to a nice restaurant. Um, and so. Uh, but that's the thing. So, like, I, I focus in on that. But, like, like you said, people are always changing. And when you have two people that are always changing and always and always developing, like, that's remarkably complex and hard to deal with. Like, I mean, I'm coming up on nine years of marriage, which is insane to think about. 
Um, and really uh, what was that? I don't know anyone who's been married as long as you who isn't, I don't know, like someone's parent. Yeah. Oh, it's <laughs> oh, that's a good way of putting it because like there are plenty of people who are like, ah, shoot, this person's pregnant. All right. Well, I guess let's do this. I know we're both 19, <laughs> but let's go for it. Um, but, uh, but yeah. And so like, I've been married nine years and part of me feels like, all right, it's nine years. I feel like we're beyond fighting, right? Like <laughs> surely, surely we know each other well enough. Uh, and, uh, that is not the case, but we, we should get back to the movie. Yeah. But the flip side is that sometimes the, like there are, ne- there are unpleasant surprises, but also there are plenty of positive surprises where you find, wow, this person is even better than I thought. And that's the risk of a relationship. And that's the risk that the, that Julie Louis-Dreyfus character is not willing to take. And then she realizes just how, how, how much of a risk she's taking that she didn't even realize by trying to avoid risk. Um, can I talk about what, as much as James Gandolfini is amazing in the movie, Mm -hmm. maybe my favorite scene in the movie doesn't even have him in it. Mm -hmm. And it's a scene where Julia Louis Dreyfus, uh, goes out to dinner with her daughter and her ex-husband and their friends. Yeah. Uh, and they're talking about getting another basket of bread or whether he could keep cookies in the house when they live together. Uh, and, uh, Ben, is it Ben Falcone? Is that the, the, yeah. uh, Tony Collette's husband's name is he's essentially doing a different version, maybe a more male version of what Julia Louis Dreyfus is doing is that he's treating everything as if it has a solution as if, as if yeah. you can work. He, he's always concerned about fairness and he's saying he should be able to keep cookies in the house and she should learn to control herself and not eat yeah. cookies because that's, that's overly logical and that's not what people are. Yeah. And so we're getting this example of, uh, Julie Louis-Dreyfus and Toby Huss didn't work together, not because he couldn't keep cookies in the house, right. but that's sort of a metaphor for the fact that there were things, um, like we were talking about, I think with her, there were things that eventually they couldn't get over about right. one another. Uh, and yet, <laughs> um, Toby Huss's thing about liking cookies doesn't bother his new wife. Yeah. She just forgets the cookies are there. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, this is one of the few films this year I saw twice because I loved it. Not, yeah. not, clearly, obviously not as much as you, but I did love the film. Um, and uh, that, it, you know, if Julia Louis-Dreyfus' character were paying it, I forget her name, so I have to say her full name. Apparently. Yeah. Uh, if her character were paying attention, that would have been the lesson she needed to learn. That just because she couldn't be with Toby Huss because of the cookies thing doesn't mean that she can't be with James Gandolfini because he had this thing with onions that drove Catherine Keener crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and that's the thing is, is, and she also, by the way, is doing it with other things as well. Her daughter is going away to college. And so she's essentially got a plan B (laughs) with her daughter's friend. Right. And which leads to a delightfully funny scene with that, that girl's mother. Um, and so that's the thing is one thing that I, I've been emphasizing, like really dramatic stuff so far. The film is also remarkably funny. Unbelievable. Like, and it's a movie, uh, that I, like I said, I saw it twice funnier the second time. I'm it, sure. I'm sure it is. It, 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 it gets funny. I can't wait to watch it more. I'm lucky enough to have a screener and I plan to watch it more because, uh, it's a very entertaining watch. And I'll tell you like, that's Yes. 
the whole cast is great. Um, I thought Toby Hust was, he's not in it very much, but he does, he's very solid in it. Tony Collette, lots of fun. James Gandolfini uh, playing, and people, I'm not the first one to say this, but playing the type of role that he doesn't often play, uh, that a lot of people, including uh, our friend Pat Healy said, he's a lot closer in real life to this guy than Tony Soprano, which is kind of this big, kind of lovable teddy bear. Yeah. Um, Not that the character's perfect, certainly, um, but that he's somebody that is kind of easy to like and is quite, uh, and, and he's very relaxed in the character too. Um, um, to get back to the funny thing though, can we talk about just how funny Tony Collette and Julie Louis-Dreyfus are together? Oh, absolutely. Well, first Julie Louis-Dreyfus and Catherine Keener, the whole thing about the, uh, what is it? Sherville or whatever, some sort of, I don't remember some what sort of herb. You've never heard. Yeah. <laughs> she says, do you want some of this? I'm drowning in it. Uh, this is all I have. Oh, this is ideal. Like the, <laughs> that's the ideal amount of Sherville or whatever it is. And then Tony Collette getting to do her Australian or na- native accent. Yeah. Uh, calls it a herb instead of an herb. Yeah. And Julia Driver's like, what? It's like, how long have you known me? I don't understand anything you're saying. Half the time. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that speaks to, there is a, there is a, I was just saying about with, with uh, James Gandolfini, but everybody in this film, there's an effortlessness to their, uh-huh. to their acting. And I'll be honest, I was skeptical about Julia Louis-Dreyfus. I love Seinfeld and I love Veep. And I think she's tremendous on both, but both require a certain type of heightened emotion. Uh, Seinfeld, because everybody's ridiculous uh-huh. and Veep, because it's that kind of, you know, tense, uh, nobody ever censors themselves kind of thing. Uh, and she's great at, at both of those. I wasn't sure if she was going to be able to play, be funny and play a regular person. And she freaking like knocks it out of the park. I think she's astounding. Wow. She's hilarious. Like, and, and the way she can just throw away lines, like I don't understand half the things you're saying, (laughs) stuff like that. Jen and I, okay. And then when she first, okay. So you're mentioning one of your favorite lines of the year, Jen and I were watching enough said, we're watching the screener. So thankfully we were at home because Jen burst out laughing and could not stop. And I can't, and I got to say, I don't blame her. I was okay. laughing pretty hard too. And it's after Julie Louis Dreyfus, after she discovers, Oh shit, my new friend is my boyfriend's uh-huh. ex. And then it, smash cut to her talking with Tony Collette over Skype and it starts with her saying are you believing this I am not shitting you and just and it's like the line is fine on the page and she sells it and makes it so funny and I like it's such a nice it's just such a nice lived in performance and that speaks to I think another thing that I like about it you don't see very often which is everybody in this film is middle-aged it's a romance Mm -hmm. and and daughters but yeah Oh, sorry. Like every major character that like you spend a lot of time with is middle aged. And I guess you spend some time with the daughter, but like the romantic leads yeah. and their friends are middle aged. And as a result, though, the char- the main character is still rather neurotic and is trying to avoid pain. There is kind of this feeling of like having sort of settled into who into who they are and their and who the and what their lives are. And uh, and so I don't know. It's it's just a film that like it's very easy to watch but the stuff that it's dealing with i think is something that everybody can relate to and if we're being honest with ourselves like it's probably something we've done and is not uh, a good thing i think it's nice that you and i for our number ones both picked films that are enjoyable to watch 
Yeah. You know, like, yeah, last year was the master for me, which is not a picnic. <laughs> um, I already figured out what last year was for me. Do you remember? You have a better Django. Movie. It was Django? Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's an enjoyable film. Yeah. Uh, but Although yeah, I, I rewatched it uh, somewhat recently, and I still love it. That is a long movie. I don't think I remembered how long it is. Um, that took up my evening. Uh, but what I'm saying is we're, we're fighting against the, pretend, the, the uh, perception that we are pretentious, like our name suggests. Exactly, uh, yes. And that we would only like, I don't know, we just like watch Showa every year or whatever <laughs> and call that the best film of the year. We picked, we picked fun films. I think so. All right. Well, this has gone on far too long. You can find us at battleshippretension.com. You can email us at david at battleshippretension.com or tyler at battleshippretension.com. You can follow me on Twitter at The Pretension. Follow Tyler at More Lessons. That's the official Twitter of his other podcast, More Than One Lesson, which is at morethanonelesson.com. My other podcast is called Hey, Watch This. You can find it at battleshippretension.com. That's all you need to know. Thank you for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.